Imagine the patriarch Abraham and King David, Isaac, Jacob, Rachel, Adam, Abel, Noah, and Moses have entered into a singing and roaring organ as into a house with the door ajar, and have disappeared within, and after this the organ acquires the ability to move, all its pipes and bellows become extraordinarily agitated, and, raging and storming, it suddenly begins to back away. If the halls of the Hermitage Museum should suddenly go mad, if the paintings of all schools and masters should suddenly break loose from the nails, should fuse, intermingle, and fill the air of the rooms with futuristic howling and colors in violent agitation, the result would be something like Dante's comedy. Hi everyone! This time, Claire and I will be talking about Dante's Inferno. As the quote of the day, I'd like to read a few sentences from T.S. Eliot's essay called Dante. I'm starting with this because Dante is one of those poets who can easily intimidate readers with the amount of scholarship that surrounds him, and the amount of notes that it might seem you need to be able to enjoy him. I don't think you need many. Some can be helpful, but here is T.S. Eliot's advice on the matter. In my own experience of the appreciation of poetry, I have always found that the less I knew about the poet and his work before I began to read it, the better. At least, it is better to be spurred to acquire scholarship because you enjoy the poetry than to suppose that you enjoy the poetry because you have acquired the scholarship. As you'll see here in a minute, I'm the farthest thing from a Dante scholar, but couldn't really love the poem more than I do. I think it's important to keep Eliot's words in mind and don't put the cart before the horse. We can love the poem without understanding absolutely every single allusion and reference and line. And for just some of the reasons why I love it so much, let's go into that chat with me and Claire. So, we're old. No, we're not. You keep saying that. We're 37. Yeah. We're halfway through our lives. Well, a little <coughs> less. You never know. If we live to 100, that's not halfway at all. More than halfway through the biblical age of three score and ten. Yeah. We are 37, the exact same age Dante was when he was exiled from Florence. <laughs> How's your midlife crisis going? I really did think about getting a motorcycle a few days ago. Yeah. A few days ago? It was a real thought. I'm not going to, but it happened. Yeah. Truly happened. We all find ourselves in dark woods like that, in which we contemplate getting motorcycles. Mm-hmm. That's a truly dark, dark wood. It is. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, do you feel like this book is more about you as we approach middle age than it would have been, say, you know, if you were to read this in college? Oh, yeah. In college, I was immortal. I hadn't even realized that, you know, I was going to get old. It was a, just a non-worry. And all I worried about was just the wonderful future. You know what I mean? Mm. And how wonderful it was going to be. <laughs> mm-hmm. But not the consequences of my action yet. You know what I mean? Not death and wondering if you're living the way you wanted to. That's exactly what I was going to say. Not only did I also think I was immortal, I didn't know that I had to choose the life that I wanted to live. Mm-hmm. And I kind of knew that, but you don't realize that, I mean, and one still doesn't really, it's not that 37 has been nonstop epiphanies, but you know what I mean, that midway on the journey of our life, we stop and think, wait, are, am I who I want to be? I know, this is why, <laughs> this is why the cliche exists 
of men in their middle age or, you know, in their midlife crisis buying a motorcycle. Suddenly you want to stop and do something different. Yeah, you want to kind of like go back and start again. Yeah. Because we... You want to go there quickly and loudly. (laughs) But I think we just kind of like make a choice and then make another choice and then make another choice. We fall into all these choices not realizing that they add up into the sum of these choices is our life. Mm Mm-hmm. You and I have a great life, I think. I mean, you're married to me, so <laughs> you have an exceptional life. <laughs> we do. We live on this kind of idyllic paradiso. Our lives are not really Inferno-esque. But um, on a daily basis, I think this poem is applicable because we can all be like, oh, no, I'm lost again, or oh, no, I'm confused again, or oh, no, I'm depressed again. You know what I mean? The cycle of Inferno, Purgatory, Paradise, finding ourselves in the dark wood isn't something that happens to us once. Mm-hmm. It can happen to us many times on a grand scale. It can happen to us once on a grand scale. But there are many versions of this we go through daily, I think. Right. And we we don't just fall once, but we also bloom many times. There's many beginnings throughout our lives. I like that, too. Yeah, there's there could be. I mean, if you listen to the right guides and humble yourself and follow their advice, Mm -hmm. you could reach many paradisos. There could be many crescendos, many peaks to your life. Yeah. That goes way beyond just... Youth, middle age, old age, right? Youth is not the only bloom. There can be many different new beginnings. I mean, that's really the least of all. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I, it's not even really the main bloom. Was youth the main bloom for you? I mean, high school sucked. I know, right. It did for me, yeah. I that, didn't... that was the inferno. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I think our culture really puts so much worth on youth when we go, you know, I think because that epitomizes a beginning, right? In which everything is possible. Which is good. It is. But that comes many times in life. Maybe not in the same ways we would have expected or had it. Yeah. There's a lot of surprises. Good ones. And a lot of this is in our control. Um, It's strange how things call out to us. It's very strange how things call out to us. I don't know quite how to say this, but I was thinking the other day, because we've been reading this poem and talking about it for a few days now, and I remember when I was a kid, there was this show, if you know about the show, this show called Northern Exposure. You ever watch this show? So Canadian. Uh, no, I th- yeah, I know. I think it's an American show. It's about the small town in, it Al- is? in Alaska. Yeah. Oh. It takes place in Alaska. I had never heard of it before I married you, and then I still didn't want to hear of it. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. I'm just kidding. I thought it was a great show. And I remember watching the show, I don't know how old I was, 12, 13. There's elderly character of this woman and i don't remember the context of this episode i don't remember the plot of this episode but she suddenly decides late in life to i guess do what we're saying to not assume that since she's old she can't start new things mm-hmm. and she starts learning italian because as she said she always wanted to read dante in the italian that was a northern exposure that was a northern exposure and it was a good show you should take my word for it and um this is 12 or 13 year old boy watching this and that struck me like a bullet just this simple her it's weird isn't it how things call out to us her saying i've always wanted to read dante in the italian and as soon as she said that i had this half conscious knowledge that oh i guess that i am i will one day read dante in the italian i kind of just had to wow i saw her aiming at this goal and it just called out to me and i i didn't voluntarily adopt it it was adopted by the cosmos on my behalf you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. This wasn't true for sports. It wasn't true for music. <laughs> I never felt this way about 
really anything else other than literature. Why am I saying this? Because you can take charge of your life. I tried, I was working at Subway, 16 year old. I started, I got these like Italian language books and started studying Italian. What? Yeah. You never told me that. Well, it didn't go anywhere because I just, you know, it's not easy to learn a language. <laughs> While you're making subs. While you're making <laughs> Subway sandwiches, yeah. But um, Emerson taught me, I was telling you this today, if you want to learn how to read another, another language, just take 12 pages in that language and read them over and over and over again until you know every word. Mm. And I'm saying this not... It sounds like I'm bragging. No, just get over this it. This isn't me bragging. I'm just saying that... It's a joy for you. It's, it's like not... you painting. You started painting a few years ago, and now you're a painter. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and you I, just... If you want I to do honestly, something, just do it. I honestly went through a midlife crisis early. Maybe I'll go through another one later. I hope not. <laughs> but I really went through a major crisis a couple of years ago, and I, I'm still coming out of... But I think it's... Yeah, I felt like, oh, now I've published a poetry book and a novel, and that's what I always wanted to do. And so now I've done those things. Now there's no new beginning. And yeah, then I started painting, and it was a whole new beginning that I had never anticipated or hoped for. And it was a beautiful lesson for me that we can keep trying new things. It sounds so cliche and duh, but yeah. we don't get it all the time. We don't understand that we can truly try new things. Every time I reread Dante, I think, oh, yeah, I'm in that dark woods, not just once, not just twice, several times a day. Mm-hmm. Like, my mood shifts. I'm like, okay, I got to get out. Got to. I have to find out. a wise person. Yeah. Maybe not listen to all the music that's going to keep <laughs> burying me deeper <laughs> to right. the ground, but find the thing that, or the person that you know can guide you out of it and has your best interest in mind. So before we got dive into that encounter between Dante and Virgil, I wanted to just read this quote. One of my favorite pieces of writing about this poem is Osip Mandelstam's essay. It's called Conversation About Dante. And this is his description of the poem. I think it's very accurate. He says, Imagine the patriarch Abraham and King David, Isaac, Jacob, Rachel, Adam, Abel, Noah, and Moses have entered into a singing and roaring organ, as into a house with the door ajar, and have disappeared within. And after this, the organ acquires the ability to move. All its pipes and bellows become extraordinarily agitated, and, raging and storming, it suddenly begins to back away. If the halls of the Hermitage Museum should suddenly go mad, if the paintings of all schools and masters should suddenly break loose from the nails, should fuse, intermingle, and fill the air of the rooms with futuristic howling and colors in violent agitation, the result would be something like Dante's comedy. Oh, dear. <laughs> isn't that incredible? He forgot stench, too. Yeah, the smell. Isn't that the, isn't that the best? I mean, he, he's right, isn't he? Yeah. Wow. It's this kind of like multi-sensory Gesamtkunstwerk of wonderful chaos. Everything is present mm-hmm. loudly. Yeah. it's it's uh, It does that thing that I often wish, you know, the, the Bible, I mean, the Bible is beautiful and very um, concrete in many ways. But often some of the spiritual concepts are, they're not mapped out for us. Hell or heaven, never mapped out. And I've always craved somebody to truly like use your imagination to, to dive in there and to really color yeah. it in for me. Oh man, there's no, there's no corner of the map left uncovered. All the senses engaged. It's like, um, if we think of... Homer, I'm trying to articulate what Dante is uniquely good at compared to some other epic poets. If we think about Homer, Milton, Goethe, Shakespeare, Ovid, Virgil, 
I think what Dante does that the others don't is is this exact thing. Everything is there. Mm-hmm. Every, every crevice, yes, Inferno is kind of dark and gloomy, but it's it's still all mapped out and illuminated. Yeah, and there are humans in it. Yeah. Real humans. Everything in the cosmos is shown to us from the face of Satan to the face of God and everything in between. No other poem or poet does that. Shakespeare doesn't do that. Yeah. and Homer I, doesn't do that. And he takes it down off its pedestal. I think it's extremely accessible. It's not like, oh, there's, this is like some high place. I think it's hell. But, um, I always, I was always intimidated of reading the Divine Comedy. Right. I assumed it was going to be like something even worse, you know, language wise than Shakespeare. I shouldn't say worse, but more complicated for some reason because, you know, it has a very lofty goal. And yeah, I started reading and I thought, oh, this, this is human stuff. I'm glad you say that. It is what Johnson says of Shakespeare, human sentiments and human language. I think it is like a landscape. I think this is actually something Mandelstam says. It is like a landscape. So if you, that is, as soon as you get out of the car and look, instantly gorgeous and instantly, it instantly speaks to you. Instantly yours. It's instantly yours. But if you start digging in the sediment, in the layers, you will find gems Mm -hmm. and there are a strata of allusions, yeah. etymologies, yes. to internal rhymes. And we're missing stuff because we're reading a translation, obviously. Yeah. I mean, but I pe- am saying, like, considering all that, it, it is very accessible and it's even casual. Strangely casual. There's all these casual interactions in hell. Yeah. As people are suffering, <laughs> as there's uh, the, the violent souls yeah. are boiling in blood. <laughs> well, he wrote it in Italian. He could have written it in Latin, and its audience, therefore, would have been like, you know, the church fathers or the scholarly. Mm-hmm. But he wrote it in Italian because he wanted it to be about everyone. He wanted it to be accessible. Going hither and thither. I'm glad you say it's easy. This is something T.S. Eliot says about it, too, that it, in his essay on Dante's, it's quite easy to read. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says this wonderful thing about it's. You don't have to really worry about the scholarship. He says it's better to be spurred to acquire the scholarship because you enjoy the poetry. I like that. Than to suppose that you enjoy the poetry because you have all the scholarship. You know, That's kind of my approach for all yeah. things we've been reading. Now that I have the luxury away from school. <laughs> I think I have an original contribution to make the Dante scholarship. Okay. Which is that he is the Where's Waldo of literature. <laughs> I take this comparison seriously. I'm quite proud of it. Is these books helped me through many a dark night. The soul is a child, afraid to turn the light off, afraid to go to sleep, slipping through the Where's Waldo books. Do you know what I mean? Uh, a massive canvas on which there is no corner without a detail, without an interesting detail, and everyone and their dog is present. You know, I'm just trying to describe the appeal of this poem to me. Imagine a dinner party in which everyone is there. Shakespeare, Amelia Earhart, Julius Caesar, Socrates, Bach, Emily Dickinson, your dead family. Everyone's there. <laughs> And not just real people, but you get to talk to Shakespeare, and then at the other end of the table, there's Hamlet, fictional creations. You know, like, mm. they're all there on one canvas. Mm-hmm. This is massively appealing to me. Time stops. Maybe this is the appeal. It's like, in Dante, there's no such thing as time. I mean, there kind of is, because the souls can kind of see far into the future, and in the fullness of times, people will end up, there are hints of time. But you know what I mean? This takes place kind of atemporally. Mm-hmm. It's all yeah. happening all at the same time. Yeah. Where's Waldo? <laughs> I'm going to keep saying that. I'm proud of it. I'm going to write a paper. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, since I'm not somebody who ev- ever takes form in poetry very seriously, I really enjoy it as I read it, and I kind of like to just enjoy it seamlessly without 
scanning lines or looking for the rhymes. I just like to hear them and feel them, right? I mean, that's just because I'm lazy. (laughs) Um, But I know that you care a lot about form, so I wanted to ask you if you had anything to say about the form of it. Well, it's important. First of all, I think your approach is the most important approach. Susan Sontag says that our early hour, as in the human species, earliest experience of art must have been incantatory. I think when Homer was being recited 3,000 years ago around the fire, it was almost dance-like. It was, almost, it was trance-inducing. People weren't being asked to scan long and short syllables, you know, on whatever clay tablets. You know what I mean? Papyrus. It to be practical for memorizing and for... Maybe. Yeah, but also more primarily its hypnotic effect. They, yeah. they wanted it to be a drug that transported you out of, out of your normal state of mind. Mm-hmm. They wanted it to be hypnotic. Yeah. So for you to say you like it and you like its effects, that was what it is designed to do. Mm. So the fact that you're not counting syllables or measuring this or measuring that, I don't think really matters. It might matter slightly more in this poem of all other poems because another thing that makes this poem so impressive is that it's kind of mathematically perfect. You know, there are three parts, Inferno, Purgatory, Paradise. Mm-hmm. Each of the cantos has 33. Each of, the, each of these sections has 33 cantos. Mm-hmm. I mean, Inferno has 34, but its intro canto is kind of an intro to all of them. And each stands with three lines. It's written in these tercets, that's right. And each line has 11 syllables, which means that each of these tercets has 33 syllables. Um, 33 being Christ's age, 3 being the number of the Trinity, right? The, God is in the structural DNA of this poem. God and the Trinity and Christ mm. are in the structural um, DNA of this poem. And it's all over. He meets three beasts in the first canto. There's, there's, the devil has three faces. There are three ladies that pray to help to convince Virgil to go get Dante. Uh, Christ is only rhymed with Christ. Um, each of the sections, the last word is stars. And then what about the turrets arima? This interlocking rhyme scheme. A, B, A, B, C, B, C, D, C, D, E, D, right? So it's not just that it rhymes, but the rhymes kind of, like the Trinity, I suppose, can't be separated from each other. They're three and one kind of combined. Mm. Um, I think I tried finding my notes for that class. I, I swear I remember learning in that class that the exact middle word in the whole commedia is you. Mm. Another reinforcement that in the middle of the journey of our life, right? Da- the audience, like Dante is a stand-in for us on this journey. It's just that the most minutely put together poem it's a cathedral you know like the chart cathedral its structural perfection is meant to make our encounter with divinity powerful and real it's part of why i like it because religion isn't an argument it's like a poem you know it's not a set of propositions you should believe this you should believe this you should believe this it's this thing you stand in front of and say wow you know i can't believe something like that exists it's incredible Mm. It does seem like the ultimate ordering of chaos. But uh, how do you feel about um, this kind of strict form being applied to something like the chaos of hell? The cantos kind of break off in in the middle of a circle of hell yeah, and then continue on. It is difficult to track where, in which circle they are and when they transition from one circle to another. I think that's intentionally done so that we feel as lost in the fog and dark of sin as Dante does wandering down there. I mean, Dante could have done fifth canto, fifth circle, sixth canto, sixth circle, but yeah. he makes it intentionally kind of like, wait, where are we? Mm. 
Well, God, I mean, we, maybe we can get to this when we get to the, finally the gates of hell. <laughs> God has an order. I mean, they call they, those people out there. This isn't really true anymore, but for a long time, this, this era of history was referred to as the Dark Ages. It's totally unfair. Nothing could be further from the truth. And Dante is a perfect example of this. I get, I get this insight from this man named Egon Friedel, who is an Austrian polymath, who wrote this book called uh, The Cultural History of the Modern Age. And he says, um, it's a wonderful thing, actually. I have the quote here. People of the Middle Ages believed in every vision, legend, rumor, or poem, in true and false, in wise things and crazy things, saints and witches, God and the devil. They saw realities everywhere, and everywhere they saw the supreme reality, God. Everything was of God. The Middle Ages were not gloomy. They were bright. We, modern people, are entirely helpless before a Milky Way that has been dissolved into atoms by rationalism. The Middle Ages were more sensible and impressive, more exciting and interesting, and in a sense, more real. I think he, this is, he's really onto an important insight. Like The universe was not dark to Dante. It was completely known. You know what I mean? Seems like it, yeah. Ultimate brightness. Ultimate knowledge. Um, why is that important? I don't know. Something so reassuring to me about a, as you say, ordering of chaos. Like, I don't, of course, believe in this particular vision of the afterlife, but the fact that something so perfect and detailed and imaginative, it's not just a momentary stay against confusion. It's an epic long stay against confusion. That's why it feels so good, perhaps. Yeah, I like that idea a lot. It's what might have helped Hamlet in his crisis. Well, I like that you say that. I mean, Shakespeare... Isn't Shakespeare so much different than Dante? Yeah. There's a huge difference in tone. Characters in Shakespeare are more helpless and less in yeah. control. I think that's very wise. They're much more helpless and less in control. Just go to any play. Macbeth, Lear, it's like like flies to wanton boys. Are we to the gods? They kill us for their sport. Mm. But the gods don't appear in that play. We they're behind a veil. We don't know who they are or if they are or where they are. Mm. Everything's dark and distant and vague and people are lost and confused. And if Shakespeare had sat down and written the Divine Comedy and tried to truly imagine what uh, sleeping perchance to dream might actually be, <laughs> maybe things would have ended not so badly for him. You mean Hamlet? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I am speaking of a fictional character, yeah. But... No, I mean, obviously, this applies to all of us. I mean, I, I felt this impulse a lot. You realize things are falling apart in some ways. <laughs> you can't stop time, but you can. There's many different ways in which you can order the chaos. And I, th I wouldn't be surprised if Dante, if that's exactly what Dante did with this epic poem. He used his crisis. Maybe he used one of his crises for good. Mm. You know what I mean? He put all that energy into. Yeah, yeah creating beauty. Yeah, there's all these political factions fighting and he was exiled. There's an argument to be made that he took out a lot of grudges, political grudges in the in the Divine Comedy, but I think what he does transcends that. I think you're right. He, he sees the opportunity to... He's lost in a dark wood. I've been exiled from my home. What have I done with my life? Let's map it all out. Let's find out what's really important. Yeah, or even I've been exiled by um, the passing of time and my mortality and my hopes. <laughs> That's right. I just find this comparison between Shakespeare and Dante so illuminating. They're so different. Mm -hmm. Similar in a way, because they're both equally kind of encyclopedic, but Shakespeare doesn't seem to have any interest in the afterlife. I know. Always left behind the curtain. I know. Y your reference to Hamlet is very apropos, like the undiscovered country. Mm -hmm. Hamlet never, not even Macbeth was with his imagination. I mean, he kind of like 
pity like the newborn babe striding the blast. He kind of imagines Judgment Day, but there's no like, what is what is that undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns? It, Hamlet says it puzzles the will. Well, yeah. Dante being like, no, it doesn't. Yep. <laughs> I know. That is amazing. I We should dive in. But I don't think that Dante believes this literally. How can I read the mind of the dead? I can't, of course. But I think we get clues enough, many and enough, that this is an allegory. That this is not Dante's assertion of what the afterlife is literally. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There are minotaurs, centaurs, giants, witches. He's ushering us into a world that is clearly fictional. Yeah. So this is an allegorical, psychological journey. I don't. This is not being asserted as the new Catholic <laughs> doctrine of the afterlife, literally. Doesn't it feel like he... He's laying awake, lying awake at night, one night, and he's just like, instead of just fearing the unknown, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna go in there and I'm going to imagine every single part. <laughs> yeah. I like that impulse. But there's something true. It's not just like escapist fantasy. No. Um, I think an important point to be made is because one thing that could easily put readers off is the sense that the sinners in hell are being punished by a vindictive God. They commit sins and God is therefore punishing them. Mm-hmm. I I think it's clear that's not what's happening. You know, and and, yeah. and we'll, we'll, I want to look at a few examples of this. But before we even start Canto One, I just want to say that I think this is simply an externalization of the lives that these people want. Does that make sense? Yeah. This is that. This is the way they chose to live on Earth, and they're getting what they wanted. The prettiness of what they wanted has been taken off, and they're left with the kind of naked truth of what they wanted. You know what I mean? I guess, yeah. I mean, like the bloodthirsty are literally yeah. being boiled in blood. And Ugolino, who's a character you know, down way at the bottom, he, all he wanted to do was get vengeance on you know someone close to him. So what is he doing for eternity? He's chewing on that person's skull. Because you know, he, all he wanted while he was alive was to like hurt him. So that's what he gets to do. And Paolo and Francesca, what did they want? They wanted each other. So they wanted to be tragically in love, which they get to be every single day in hell. That's what they get. So God comes off. You know what I mean? You could easily. This isn't about God being vindictive. I think it's about what humans, the universal truth. We read this in the Bhagavad Gita. You reap what you sow, you get what you want. You know, there's that moment where they go into the city of Dis and Virgil knocks on the door. Hey, let us in. And one of the demons says, who who are you invading our fortress? So it, it, the city of hell isn't a prison that keeps the souls in. It's a fortress that they don't want anyone. Mm, it's, yeah. they, it's where they have chosen to go. Interesting. How I, great, do, I, I never do think about God in the inferno. I never think, oh, that's a terrible God to do that to those souls. For some odd reason, God doesn't feel present at all. Let's pause that and we'll see the inscription on hell, but we have to get okay. to some of these characters. <laughs> How great is this first canto? So he see, he, he's lost in this dark woods. He sees Virgil. How great is that? Isn't that the best thing ever? He suddenly, he's lost. He cries out for help. He sees this hill and he thinks, oh, I'll follow the sun out of this dark wood up this hill. But there are these beasts that prevent him from going. So he has to turn back down and lose his hope of ascending and... After this little failure, he sees this dim shadow and calls out to it. I don't know who you are, but help me. And it happens to be his hero. I just can't help but keep keep picturing Dante trying to sleep one night and he can't sleep. And he keeps reading poetry. Virgil, yeah. You know what you were saying about the sinners are getting their punishment that they wanted. They're living the lives in hell that they kind of subconsciously wanted. Um, 
How would that be true for Dante? You mean Virgil? No, Dante. He finds himself in this dark wood. He's not dead yet and not being punished yet, but he's there. Well, we're going to keep reading. We're going we're gonna to read Purgatory. We're going to read Paradise. He says in Purgatory this wonderful thing. They get to the circle. Of, so Purgatory is the section of the Divine Comedy where all the same sins are represented. There are murderers. There are suicides. There are liars. There are lustful people mm-hmm. in Purgatory. They're just people who were repentant and tried to change and wanted something better. So they get a chance to practice being better. And when they've practiced long enough, they get to ascend. They literally will float off Mount Purgatory into heaven. So they will eventually get into heaven. And they get to the circle of the proud in Purgatory. And I, if I remember correctly, the proud are being bowed, weighed down by it. They have to walk up this mountain with enormous boulders on their back. And Don, Dante says to Virgil, I'm going to be spending some time here. The circle of the proud, which I love more than I can express. <laughs> he know, He's arrogant. He knows he's one of the best poets ever. Can't deny it. He has this ego, and he says to Virgil, this is where I will be for a few, you know, centuries, burning burning this little vice I have away. Mm. So we don't know his exact place um, in the scheme of things. But, I mean, your, your question is, why does he end up in a dark wood? I, I've thought about that, and it's it's a good question. It's not immediately obvious. Why does – just make sure I'm getting your question right. Your mm-hmm. question is, why is it Dante specifically that gets this foretaste? Why does Why is he picked to go on this journey? Because mm-hmm. we're all lost. Some other lost soul could have been picked. And I think everybody gets picked for this journey. Everybody at some point reaches a moment where they're like, oh yeah, I'm not immortal. <laughs> I am, my, con- my actions have consequences. And you need to, at some point, really accept, truly accept that things change. What you do matters. Yeah. And that is a sort of dark wood, right? That is his whole journey, really. It's a complicated question. I think part of it is that he he, he, realized, he he could have been so consumed with bitterness and rage and desire for revenge at the people who exiled him that he notices this eating at his soul and thinks, I'm lost, morally lost. How can I get out of this? And dramatizes that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think he's just a good poet. <laughs> Another answer would be that he's just a great poet and it he was given a role to fulfill in the history of the world. And his role is to write a story that is about all of us in which we get to see what psychological progress or not mm. a lack of progress looks like. Mm. So it has to be Dante because no one else is as good a poet. <laughs> Help me. And suddenly there he is, Virgil, the ghost of your of your idol, the poet he, he has read you know, his whole life and has memorized. And of course, this is fictional. So <laughs> I could write a story in which the ghost of Shakespeare comes to me, but it's so tender. It's so beautiful. And it's, it's such an homage and it's such an, an act of worship. Mm. I mean, maybe that's what drives me to read him in Italian in the original. I spent a lot of time asking myself, why, am, why do I spend time reading him? Proust, you know, I'm trying to read Proust in French too. It's why it's not getting me anywhere. It's no practical purpose. It does nothing. I won't really be able to understand him the way a French person would or an Italian person would. It's a kind of an act of worship. Mm. I do it. I do it. Uh, no other word fits it. It's worship. And this is Dante being like Virgil, my savior. He will guide me. Out he of will hell. guide me literally out of hell. It's like the best thing ever. So. Yeah, when I when I read this, I thought, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> you know, I know it's uh, 
It's a pretty great plot. I mean, Virgil, yeah, in the Aeneid, Virgil has this, has Aeneas go through this underworld. So Virgil is a great choice because he's kind of mapped the territory in a way, but mm-hmm. not as extensively as, as Dante. So if you had to, if you had to write the story. Shakespeare would be hard because who was, first of all, <laughs> it wouldn't be hell that Shakespeare, you know, because it would be, it would be the Forest of Arden or maybe, maybe ancient Rome or pre-Christian Britain. You know, Shakespeare doesn't go to hell. That's what we were talking about before. This is not this is not a realm in Shakespeare's imagination. It's just wonderful that he even had somebody that he loved I mean, that much too. Your question is hypothetical, but it isn't. We do pick. We all pick. Yeah, we, we choose We our all guides. pick our guides. And so in a way, I have picked Shakespeare. I've picked Dante. I've picked Homer. I've picked Keats. You know, I've picked Wordsworth. I've picked Proust. You know, I've picked the Bible. You know what I mean? Mm. And said, "My fate is in your hands. Uh, I will, I will, fa- I will do what you say is. I will live in the way that you say is the best way to live." I also think it's, just, yeah, Dante is arrogant, but uh, not so arrogant that he doesn't announce right at the beginning that he needs a guide and he needs advice. Yes. Also, it's just so great that he chooses a poet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Not a not a political leader. <clears throat> not a political leader. Not a philosopher. Not a theologian. Not an angel. Not an angel, that's right. Not Beatrice. A, a poet. This is this is proof to me. And yeah, Virgil gets things wrong, and Dante makes it clear that Virgil has limits to his knowledge, but... He even gets scared sometimes. And he, yeah, I love that about mm-hmm. him. He's given pride of place. It's That's clear. He's Virgil is given pride of place, and I think it's because what is Dante more than anything else? He's a poet. He's not a religious thinker. Poetry trumps everything in this book, and we'll see some examples of that. Mm-hmm. Poetry trumps everything. Yeah. Dante in Canto Two says, "I am not Aeneas, and I'm not Paul. I haven't. I, I can't go on these big adventures. I like that moment because we all have that voice in us telling us we can't do great things. Mm. I'm not Picasso. You know, pick your pick your mode of being in the world. I'm not Abraham Lincoln if you want to be a politician. Yeah. I'm not Nelson Mandela. You know, but it's like, well, much of that's your in your power to change." So this is Dante saying, like, well, maybe I will go on an adventure and writes one. Yeah. I am the way into the doleful city. I am the way into eternal grief. I am the way to a forsaken race. Just as it was that moved my great creator, divine omnipotence created me, and highest wisdom joined with primal love. Before me nothing but eternal things were made, and I shall last eternally. Abandon every hope, all you who enter. So love created me. We're being told that the creator of hell is love. Is this some kind of sick joke? It goes back to the question, where is God down here? I feel like this weird thing happens where God is similar to the writer in that love created this book, seemingly. Yeah. Love for the details, love for the human condition. And for Beatrice. And uh, the creator of... Hell is somebody who loves order, (laughs) you know, thinking of the form, someone who loves order and, um, yeah, the opposite of chaos. That sounds weird, like some weird sadist, but... What do you mean? This this is the... the, If God... Hell is in some way the opposite of chaos? Yeah, in a way, because there's an order to it and a purpose. I see what you mean. Everything in its place. Maybe this is related to a question that we should have asked in Canto 1. Dante says, I'm trying to get up to that hill. 
I'm trying to follow the sun up, trying to ascend psychologically, spiritually. Mm-hmm. And remember how Virgil responds? Well, then you have to go down. Yeah. You have to go down. Why does he say that? Can't someone aspire to God or goodness or moral living? Why do we have to go to hell? Well, he doesn't say you have to go down as in you have to go and really immerse yourself in hell and um, enjoy it or anything like that. Why do we have to go there at all? Well, I don't know if it's have to. It's just that that's how it is. Okay, we'll say more about that. I mean, that could be have to. You have to because you can't not. (laughs) You don't get to not. Is that what you mean? Yeah, the nature of things is just, it's not like that in life. You don't just go up. You know what I mean? There's an opposite in all things. Yeah, we did the Tao Te Ching. And there's this idea, I think it must be related, right? It's like every great thing casts a shadow. Or to quote Emerson, the, the rifle has its kickback, you know? Yeah. You, you can't get... To be alive, you have to be frail. Yeah. You can't ascend without... A, there is no height if there's no bottom. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's just a flat line then. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, that's probably what it is. He's saying life is not one-sided. It's not just up. So a, a map of the cosmos without the inferno would be a, a lie. Yeah. And if you want to see what is, we got to see what is. Yeah. Does this relate? I don't know. I said it maybe relates to love. Does it? Maybe not. Does love create hell? I mean, maybe this means uh, that, like I was saying before, like Paolo and Francesca love each other. They get what they want. Ugolino loves being treacherous, so that's what he gets. The hypocrites love being hypocritical. We follow our loves, and some loves lead us to where they, you know, some loves lead us down. Is that holding water for you at all? I don't know. Yeah, I mostly thought of it as um, love creates order. Without but love, why? Things are just chaos. I see, but to take it a step further, does love create order in which people are being ripped in half and eaten by snakes and boiling in blood and... I don't literally think so, but do think that love, you know how people always say kids like to be disciplined? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's yeah. how you show them that you care and you love them. And I see, I see, yeah. Humans are lost without rules. Humans are lost without clear consequences and without punishment, right? To not punish a child, maybe we have memories of doing something we shouldn't have done and our parent not caring and thinking... Oh, they don't care about me. Nothing I do I must, matters. I must not be valuable to them. Yeah. I, I'm not actually speaking biographically. I had great parents, but yeah. it's a common experience. Mm-hmm. Isn't it great that the lukewarm don't even get in hell? The undecided. They are not even in hell. They're in this weird vestibule to hell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're, just, they're just a nowhere land. And it's like not even hell wants them. That's how we're introduced really to this place kind of sets the tone that um, to to not be passionate about anything is it means the world doesn't know you were here the world did not record that you were ever alive (laughs) yeah you didn't take a stand on anything i don't mean just politically just you didn't care enough to have an opinion or believe in anything and uh, yeah those kinds of people are truly depressing try to talk to someone like that and it's like what is your life? <laughs> so they get what they want. Yeah. Which is nothing. Nothing. They wanted nothing, and they don't get anything. They don't get into hell. They don't get to ascend up purgatory. They. No one in this canto is named. I find that very interesting. In, in all the other cantos, there are names of people. We mm-hmm. find out biographical details. 
But Dante wonderfully, Dante the poet wonderfully says, okay, you didn't care. You're not going to be cared about. Mm. That's what you want. Yeah, that is a cool way to start out a book like this by someone clearly very passionate like Dante and Virgil. They have to kind of wade through these people to, yeah. to get to hell. Yeah, it just says the world does not record that they were here or that they were ever alive. It it reminded me of all the restrooms I've been to and all the nasty gas stations of this world. <laughs> and fear no ask in their own right. Or in all the... <laughs> yeah. You know, the famous inscription on bathroom doors that says, I was here, or... Greg was here. Yeah. Yep. Or even if it doesn't say I was here, just any sort of graffiti, you know what I mean? <laughs> People are so desperate to to have been here. Not I've to have been here, but to assert, to to communicate to anyone that they anyone. were here. Even if it's a bat even if it's a restroom. Yeah. Last chance gas station. <laughs> even as a kid I was always moved by that. I always thought, huh, I wonder why people keep writing that. The lukewarm people. They did not write in any restrooms. <laughs> and so they don't get written into the book of the universe. And I, this is the book of the universe. It's encyclopedic, you know, so they don't get a, a place in here. It's a wonderful moment when after this, all of the dead souls wait for Karen, the boat captain, to, to carry them over the shore. As in autumn, when the leaves begin to fall one after the other until the branch is witness to the spoils spread on the ground. So did the evil seed of Adam's fall drop from that shore to the boat one at a time at the signal, like the falcon to its lure. Away they go across the darkened waters, and before they reach the other side to land, a new throng starts collecting on this side. My son, the gentle master said to me, this is Virgil talking to Dante, all those who perish in the wrath of God assemble here from all parts of the earth. They want to cross the river. They are eager. It is divine justice that spurs them on, turning the fear they have into desire. How do you take that? They want to cross because this passage turns their fear into desire. Divine justice turns their fear into desire. Is this true psychologically that sinners, we, the sinful aspects of us, want to face our consequences? Yeah, it goes. I think it goes back to that thing about kids. Kids want to be disciplined. They don't want to get away with everything. It makes them feel unloved and lost and like there are no rules and... Honestly, the idea of no rules in the universe is terrifying. It's worse. It's a true hell. Yeah. Um, they want to know that there is an order. There is. They it's have, very comforting, yeah. There's a spot where they belong. Yeah. It feels like in all the movies, the uh, criminals always seem relieved at the end to be going to jail. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the chase is over. The cops get them. There's this, like, sigh. Yeah. Sigh of, well, at least I don't have to worry about that anymore. Yeah. Or even, like, you know, finally somebody stopped me. Right. If Dante worships Virgil so much, why doesn't he put him on purgatory, or better yet, paradise? There are pagans. There are pre-Christian souls in purgatory and paradise. Dante could have imagined a fiction in which Virgil was one of the people that Christ rescued from hell, because he was a virtuous pagan. This is a kind of sick joke, right? That, oh, Virgil, my hero, you're in hell forever. What's going on? In Canto Four, we learned that Virgil is... Canto Four isn't really hell, I guess. It's this kind of limbo. It's this kind of gloomy garden in which virtuous pagans live. People like Homer, Horace, Virgil, Socrates, Plato, even, you know, Islamic thinkers are there. Mm -hmm. Is this a, kind, of... kind of like smiling to his face and stabbing him in the back? 
No, I find it kind of beautiful. It's almost as if he's thinking all of these people with these beautiful minds. There doesn't seem to be a, there doesn't seem to be like a real place for them, except for with each other. Hmm. I like that idea. Doesn't that seem that I actually thought it was comforting? I thought, oh wow, they get to just have very interesting conversations together. This proves my uh, hypo- proves my hypothesis. Not mine, anyway. They get what they want. Yeah. In fact, they're maybe not righteous enough, uh, seemingly, or following all the right rules enough, but they have their own, they've carved out their own place. Yeah, I like that idea. That had not occurred to me. This little bit about the leaves I just read, this exact metaphor, like the leaves, so are the souls of men. They fall, and then another generation sprouts up. Homer uses this. A Virgil steals it from Homer. Oh. <laughs> Dante steals it from Virgil. Wow. It's also in the Bible, but I don't know if these Greeks are reading Hebrew scripture. The point is that it's, yeah, it's this kind of like insulated, circular discussion. They don't need an outside world. They're talking to each other, kind of literally, mm-hmm. using each other's words. Mm-hmm. So that's what they want. They want to talk. They want to write poems to each other, for each other, quoting each other. Yeah. That's what they get to do. Yeah. And Socrates, you know, like... Does Socrates really want to go live on a cloud? I mean, right. he says he does, actually, but... Can we really picture him there? Yeah, he's a guy that likes to walk around barefoot in the agora of Athens, talking to himself, sparking up conversation. That's heaven for Socrates, conversation. Yeah. Right. Conversation that is mind-provoking and yeah. unconventional and kind of yeah. maybe breaks the rules a bit. You've sold me on that. This is virtual... Maybe is like exactly where he wants to be. Mm. Okay. How great is it that Dante says they welcomed me as a sixth into their company? Homer, Horace, Ovid, Lucan, Virgil. <laughs> I embrace, kind of literally take Dante into there. It's so wonderful. That is wonderful. Isn't he a narcissist? <laughs> why, why are we saying this is wonderful? How dare he be so arrogant? I don't feel like it's arrogant. I feel like it's more kindred spirits. That's interesting. Coming together. I think that's interesting because this this is, therefore, the implication is that Dante, the pilgrim, not the poet, Dante, the character walking around, mm-hmm. it's like the, the island of the Lotus Eaters, you know, from the Odyssey. It's like you have a, you have a destination you have to get to, but... Along their way, along the way, there will be tempting stops. You could stop. Like, how tempting must it have been for Dante to be like, "I'm home." You know, mm. <laughs> this is yeah, this is home. Yeah. Um, so he's kind of committing. He's not committing a sin, but he's being presented with a temptation mm-hmm. that kind of flatters his ego. Yeah. I wonder if he ever felt that way with his favorite writers. I wonder if he thought, "I shouldn't worship them. I should worship God." Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Spend I think more time worshiping him than reading. Yeah, it's a it's a kind of um, it would be a sin to assert yourself. It would be a sin of pride to assert yourself as sixth in that company. So Dante's kind of like this is proof that he's he is lost. He has lost the moral way because he's kind of committing a sin here. Just being like, yeah, I was a sixth of their company. That's the sin of pride, mm. but also the sin of perhaps idol worship. Feeling like I, you know, like that wonderful Virginia Woolf quote where she says once i get to the gates of heaven 
I'll say I have no need of heaven because I have loved reading. I have loved reading. That's the best ever. So good. I know. Maybe something like that. Yeah. He's like, hmm, do I really need to get into Do I need to? Do I really need to ascend? Yeah, it's definitely a Lotus Eater's moment. Yeah. How great are Paolo and Francesca in Canto Five? Does Dante are... Does Dante really hate lovers? No, I think the fact that he faints and that he's so moved by this more than any other part so far. He's very moved by them and their story. Um, I think that proves that there's obviously a backstory. He feels great compassion for lovers. And yeah, there's some great fear there that he is maybe committing a similar sin, right? She quotes to him one of his love poems. So it's like, oh no, this is what the sinners read? Me? What have I done? Yeah. Do I inspire passion that is wrong? Yeah. Or And do I delight in it more than I should? And is my worship of Beatrice any different? Exactly. That's another thing we didn't say at the beginning, but the chutzpah, you know, I don't know any other word for it, the daring. <laughs> Why did you just say You've never said that word <laughs> I have, in our dude. marriage. I have so. Not a single time. To organize the cosmos around Beatrice, it is blasphemy. It is, yeah. He, Beatrice is not his wife. He he has another wife. Yeah. I shouldn't say another. He has a wife <laughs> who is not Beatrice and who is the, the most divine figure. Yes, God and Christ exist. We'll see that in the Paradiso. But man, Beatrice is the shining angel. There's a kind of like... One of the heroic accomplishments to me of this poem is that Dante took his own psychological, dare I say, flaws, his obsession with this woman, and made them the virtues of an entire cosmos. It doesn't say anywhere that what Beatrice is, or it doesn't mention her name up until Canto 15, right? It's just she who... That's right. She does appear in Purgatory and is named. Yeah. So we don't have a backstory on her yet, but ju- I think we do get that sense when we read this cant about Francesca and Paolo, because um, only somebody in a similar situation would yeah. have this kind of reaction. Yeah. And they both kind of do the same thing, because first of all, the Canto 5 starts with Minos, this character who, who warns the pilgrim, like, don't listen, don't, you have, don't trust the sinners. The sinners are going to tell you things, and they're all lying. They're going to want to present themselves in the most sympathetic light possible. They're not really to be trusted. And Francesca is a great example of this. She never mentions that Paolo is the brother of her husband. Mm -hmm. They're committing adultery. So there are truths that she withholds to make her own story seem less bad. You're making this point that Dante is doing the same thing. He never tells us he has a wife. Mm Mm-mm. Um, and that be the, his love for Beatrice is semi-idolatrous. Mm-hmm. They're whirling around in these winds because, you know, one interpretation is that they're, these are people who wanted to live lives that were governed by any wind of passion. Mm-hmm. Any, any passion that arises, they'll let themselves be blown around by it. Mm-hmm. And her and Paolo get to embrace forever in this wind. I love that Paolo doesn't talk. It's just kind of like... <laughs> Hovering in the background. Um, does he... I don't know. They're not even really in the city of hell. You know, they're not in the city of Dis. So it's a kind of like sin light, diet sin. That's, that's the impression I get. You know, Dante isn't really coming down that hard on them. The lovers? Yeah. No, yeah, he doesn't. 
The pilgrim doesn't, but the poet does. He puts them in heaven. This is the question we can ask ourselves over and over again. What do we do with this constant contradiction? Dante is often like, oh, tell me your story and I'll bring your, I'll bring news back of you to your loved ones above. He's overcome with pity again and again for these sinners. And Virgil is like, don't do that. Don't feel bad for them. So what is the moral stance that this book wants to, wants us to take on these sinners? Well, with these lovers specifically, I feel like they don't seem evil at all. They just seem like tragic characters. She doesn't take responsibility for her actions. I know. But is that in life true? Are we not in control of our behavior? I think sometimes it seems like we're not. But are we? I mean, you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, we... No, we are more than we think. But that's the tragedy. To me, she they sounds like... They didn't think like they were. They didn't think they were, yeah. To me, she sounds like one of our kids being like, well, he made me do it. You know, <laughs> it's like dodging responsibility. Yeah. So there's something tragic about their lack of responsibility taking and their ignorance. Yeah, they're like little children who just kind of do whatever come, you know, comes to mind or feels like the thing they want to do at any particular moment. Should we feel compassion for any of these sinners? In Canto Six, he says to one of them, Jacko, your grievous state weighs down on me. It makes me want to weep. Is that the correct, quote-unquote correct, attitude we should have? Should we want to weep for them, or should we, should we say about them? Well, so far, all I keep getting is the sense that, that Dante is trying to create real humans that are worthy of love and, and forgiveness. If they weren't worthy of love and forgiveness, they wouldn't be so human. I like that idea. Compassion. I mean, I still think it could be a trap. Like, don't feel bad Mm. for them. This is what God wants. This is divine justice. This is what they want. They don't need our pity. But then on the other hand, it's like Dante, the pilgrim, can't help but feel pity towards them. And he puts that pity on so many pages of this book. And that is the exact thing that you were just able to describe that I love so much about it so far. You know what I mean? Despite this very rigid order in the form and the rigid order of this justice, there is room for for some variation. There is room for us to feel sorry for the sinners. So is that a little argument for maybe not completely following the rules? Well, Dante does. You know, we've seen pagans, virtuous pagans in the Inferno. We're about to talk for a minute or two about the suicides. Yeah. So we'd think, oh, this is, he invents codified rules that if you're a pagan, you can't go to heaven. Mm-hmm. If you kill yourself, you can't go to heaven. When they exit Inferno and go to on the base of the mountain of purgatory, the first person they meet there is Cato, who is a pagan who killed himself. Mm. So you're right. Dante is frequently defying expectation, breaking the system, allowing for exceptions, I mean, isn't that what makes form so powerful? That's a good comment, too. When you're able to kind of explode out of it with a one little move that goes against the form. Yeah. It becomes very powerful, right? Any kind of deviation. I just wonder, though, if love for the pity, compassion, sympathy, empathy for these sinners is much more than that. Is, it, is that too many explosions of the system? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but... So let's talk about the suicides. As this is, I mean, we're skipping Farinata, a proud guy that comes out of his grave, which is a very, very wonderful moment. Yeah. Kind of Shakespearean in his realism. They enter this woods, and just to give you a sense of the structure 
how minutely structured this poem is. Look at its first three tercets, how they begin. Not yet had Nessus reached the other side, and then no green leaves, and then no thick, rough, scrubby home. So he's beginning quite noticeably with three negations. Not this, no that, no that. On purpose, because suicides are people who say no to life. So this kind of thing happens in pretty much every canto, where the language, it's not just that the punishment fits the crime, it's the, the kind of the very style of speaking, the very structure of the poem becomes emblematic of the sin being depicted there. It's quite intricate. This isn't just, yeah, this is like only that. one of like, seriously, every canto does this. Yeah, even with the lukewarm in the beginning, they speak in a very chaotic manner. This wonderful forest of suicides and Virgil's like, go, go ahead, tear a branch off, see what happens. And blood and words come out and this poor bush says, why do you, why do you break me? I find this incredibly moving and sad. It is sad. I'm going back to the compassion that we were talking about for sinners. I like this. Why do you rip me? Have you no sense of pity whatsoever? Men we were once, now we are changed to scrub. But even if we had been souls of serpents, your hand should have shown more pity than it did. Mm. You know, there, there's a real emphasis on pity for sinners. But it's a quote-unquote sinner talking. I mean, oh, I, I agree with you. The, whenever I read the Inferno, my, my prevalent emotional state is pity, yeah. compassion, empathy, mm-hmm. grief for these people. But I, I just I just wonder if I'm committing a sin in feeling that way. Do you know what I mean? M- M- Mino says, don't trust these people. They're going to try to present themselves in the best light and make you feel bad for them. And, you know, don't. It's a great book because of this. It's a great book because we never quite know how we should react. I know. I guess, yeah, in life, it's it's like that, too, with people who. This is so true. I mean, real criminals, right? Even if you know they're lying to you about, you know what they've done or how they feel about what they've done, you would still be conflicted. You would wonder if you should feel bad for them because maybe yeah. they had a difficult background that forced them into a life of crime or yeah. maybe if they're just lost and never had a guide. <laughs> it's like we get to, when we get to Ugolino, Ugolino tells in, down at the very bottom, he tells the most horrific story about what was done to him. And it's like, how could anyone treat you this way? As if and in an attempt to make us forget about what he did to these people, right? So it would be like Charles Manson <laughs> telling you about his abuse that he suffered as a kid. You know, it's like, you know, mm. it's like, yeah, but no, so you're right. It's, it's messy. It's very, very messy. Mm. We don't have to go to such extremes just with family members, you know, when, you know, fa- family members that you love. And- right. And maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe it doesn't matter what they say or whether they deserve it or not. Maybe the human instinct to pity others and to feel compassion is a good one. Well, I want to ask you about that in the next canto. Before we get there, what is it with this words and blood? Something very evocative about that image to me. This is a poet writing words, and there's some image about here that words and blood are mixing. We've been told something about the nature of poetry. It sounds like I'm leading you on. like Not really, though. In the forest of the suicide sides, they can't talk unless they're wounded. Yeah. I wonder if they don't have the privilege of speech anymore because they willingly gave it up. Yeah, I think. The ability to speak and write really is greatly valued in this book. I haven't thought to the bottom of this, but there is also, in addition to that, something I need to keep thinking through about 
because they, they come out of one wound. It's like blood and words gurgled out of the same. I broke off this branch and from mm-hmm. the same wound issued blood and words. Something there to me, there's some hint that we're being told about how speaking is a kind of wound. Mm. I don't know if this is a kind of original sin or a kind of... Um, or even hurting yourself by speaking. Nietzsche says, thoughts to which we give words are already dead in our hearts. <laughs> Interesting. So it's like, any, any, this is Hamlet's disease. Anytime he speaks, you know, words, words, words. It's like, <laughs> enough of these words are... Uh, words always hurt us in a way. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Or pain, words are painful. Maybe he is um, saying that some of these people fell into a sort of habit of speaking painful words only. Mm. Maybe, you know, I don't know. I'm thinking of a truly depressed person. It does seem like they bleed, you know, with all the everything they say. Mm. So now in hell, that's that's what they've chosen for themselves, to always bleed in all their expressions. I mean, I don't want to say that I... I'm not making an argument here about mental illness or anything. I'm just trying to see what Dante might have thought about it. Fifteen. Um, yeah, it shouldn't surprise us or really we shouldn't let it bother us that, that much that homosexuals are in the Inferno. There are many of them in the Purgatory, too. So it's not this mode of sexuality that Dante has objections to per se. Yeah, I mean, all his heroes aren't held to. That's right. That's right. <laughs> And even if he did, it'd be like, well, of course he did. He was it was wrong at four, the time. 14th century Italian Catholic. So one of these people is Brunetta Latini, who is Dante's former teacher, who he puts in hell, which I find very interesting. There's this wonderful simile that starts this Canto 15. As the Flemings, living with the constant threat of flood tides rushing in between Vicent and Bruges, build their dikes to force the sea back, and as the Paduans build theirs on the shores of Brenta to protect their town and homes, before warm weather turns Chirantana's snow to rushing water, so were these walls we walked upon constructed. Though the engineer, whoever he may have been, <laughs> a wonderfully strange thing to say, Dante knows exactly who that was, <laughs> did not make them so high as thick as those. So these Flemish dikes built to make the land fertile. Again, this is not an accidental simile here. Dikes built to control the water and make the land able to grow crops fertile. It's wonderfully ironic juxtaposition with this group of people who can't reproduce. 700-year-old gay stereotypes. I don't know what to make of this. We saw a troop of souls come hurrying toward us beside the bank, and each of them looked us up and down, as some men look at other men at night when the moon is new. <laughs> they, <laughs> That's funny. I read that, but I didn't realize. They st- it keeps going. They strained their eyebrows, squinting hard at us, as an old tailor might at an eye's needle. Eyed in such a way by this strange crew, I was recognized by one of them, who grabbed my garment's hem and shouted, How marvelous! Oh my gosh. Come on. Kind of like admiring this fabric. Brunetta Latini says, Oh, you know, my student. He even calls Dante many times, My son, my son, my son. Another kind of ironic gesture because Brunetta Latini, as a gay man, could have no children, wants to adopt Dante as a kind of son. Um, and Dante says wonderful things to him. Oh, if if all I wish for had been granted, I answered him, you certainly would not yet be banished from our life on earth. Mm. My mind is etched, and now my heart is pierced with your kind image, loving and parental. Mm. When living in the world hour after hour, you taught me how man makes himself eternal. Which, and then, while I live, my tongue shall always speak of my debt to you and of my gratitude. But he puts him in hell. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I love you, I worship you, I respect you, 
may you burn forever. I, I, I don't know how to interpret this. I don't know how to react to this. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's just wishful thinking, but maybe he's imagining culture as this hell and that everything has a place. Unfortunately, kind people like Brunetto are placed in hell and are not, you know, valued as they should be, as he values him. The veil is so thin between, between hell and real life, isn't it? You, do you mean by that statement that the life Brunetto Latini was living on Earth, he just keeps living in the Inferno? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I accept that usually with these pun- punishments, the glamour, the, the, the comfort and the glitz and the glamour of the sin are peeled away. So they're running around this barren, hot sand desert and a rain of fire is landing on them. Barren, hot desert, nothing can procreate out of the soil. That's a message, a symbol. I mean, this might so be a It's not like that he powerful, doesn't want that. This might be a powerful metaphor for gay people, you know what I mean? Living on Earth even today. You know what I mean? I'm not going to be able to untangle this because there are gay people in the purgatory and they, they're even kissing each other. This is a wonderful moment in I the purgatory where, <laughs> where the, these two, this line of people walking in opposite directions approach each other and Dante says like ants, one by one, they met and greeted each other and kissed and kept going. <laughs> so they get to embrace and they... Oh, they that's beautiful. You know... I, I mean, I'm not saying that Dante is, is, is you know, pro-LGBT, <laughs> probably far from it, but... It seems like he keeps looking at the human rather than their actions, huh? Maybe it is the specific trait of homosexuality that Dante objects to, because how do you end up in hell? You commit sins and are unrepentant. You commit sins and hold on to your sins and refuse to let go. Hmm. How do you get into purgatory? You commit sins, but you think, this isn't really what I want. I want something else. I want something more. I want something better. I'm really just struck by his... His love for both rules and rule-breaking. Strict adherence to to laws and strict consequences, but then sometimes those vary. It very much depends on motive. Motive is everything, yeah. and attitude. Yeah, right. You can kill people and get into purgatory. Doesn't it almost seem so, so far, at least? The pilgrim, or even the writer, is smarter than, than the system. That they see the flaws in it, but Dante keeps pitying people when he's not supposed to. It's as if the pilgrim thinks he's smarter than God. Which is a sin. I know, but it doesn't feel like one. Because we're like, oh yeah, we pity him too. Or we pity the sinner too. You're, no, what you're saying is good, because I am constantly... It's very, very ambiguous what moral stance I'm meant to take on the sinners. Yeah. Matthew 7, judge not lest ye be judged. And here Dante is inventing the most elaborated judgment in literary history. Yeah. You know? So even to write this poem is a kind of a sin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. But then he creates himself inside this fictional world that could be sinful to create. He creates a version of himself that is weeping for these sinners. Yeah. And then later when he... And he does it so beautifully that we also want to weep weep for them. You're absolutely right. And when he gets lowered down, there's one sinner you'll see, he starts ripping his hair. He gets mad at the sinner and he starts abusing him. And Virgil's like, my boy. Uh, Oh, no. (laughs) And I I mean, how else as readers could we react than to be like, oh, this is wrong. You spent too much time in in hell. Uh, Dante, you got to get out of there. Or you spend too much time getting hung up on the rules. 
it's it's just so that's I think that's why one of the dozens and dozens of reasons why we keep reading because it's completely wonderfully ambiguous just as you said it is in life like how do we how do we react to people that do bad things ourselves how do how do we treat ourselves when we do something bad mm. should we chastise ourselves should we have mercy on ourselves well yes the answer is yes when and how it's very messy you don't want to be too easy on yourself <laughs> You don't want to be too easy on yourself, but you, you mostly we bully ourselves, which is also bad. Mm-hmm. I've been uh, had a very lucky life, definitely more. I've sinned more than I've been sinned against, to misquote King Lear. <laughs> but I have had glimpses of hell. I think it's fair to say I've had glimpses when I was on a mission in Russia. You know, I saw some lives that were uh, pretty wrecked mm. for all of the reasons that lives can be wrecked. Physical illness, drug addiction, abuse, poverty. I was beat up several times. You? That's one time we knocked on this, did a lot of door knocking, and um, this woman let us in. And uh, we made an appointment to go visit her again the next day, and this extremely large man answered the door. I'm talking like, what's that guy's name from the Adams family? Lurch? Did you ever watch that show? Uh, probably I don't remember. Extremely large. Clearly, and you're 6'4". He was so big. And uh, clearly, under the influence of some substance, we asked for this woman. I think her name was Paulina. We asked if she was home, and he wasn't registering the question. He just kept staring at us and squinting his eyes. And he leaned in, and, you know, Mormon missionaries wear those name badges. He said something like, what on earth? And then he grabbed me by the collar. And, well, actually, before this, we saw her kind of down the hall of this apartment, kind of stagger out of our room. Also, not well in some way. And he grabbed me. He was able to, because he was intoxicated in some way, uh, wriggle free. He chased us all the way down the stairs of this giant apartment complex, these Soviet cinder blocks. But we would see him around the neighborhood, and he would, you know, throw glass bottles at us. And anyway, the the day after this, why am I telling the story? The day after that, we saw Paulina again. She sold fruit on the road, on the side of the road, and she had, like, clearly been hit by him. She had this bruised eye. So we just, you know, we got the message. We didn't go back. Tons of stories like this of people who are living in a kind of hell. Hmm. So what was I saying? I think if I had to define hell, it would be maybe hopelessness. Mm-hmm. Because been thinking about this since we started reading this book because I've always had lives can be very bad and still not be hell. But I think what I'm describing is the kind of life in which people believe there is no opportunity for improvement, no reason to improve, no reason to strive, no reason to progress. And all the only happiness if whatever, the only thing close to happiness is uh, numbing yourself. Yes, momentary, transitory dulling of this pain but instead of a road i mean that's why i think dante's so good because in the middle of the journey of our life right in the middle of the journey so life is a journey we have a destination there's a there's we need humans need a destination Mm -hmm. you know what i mean the psyche needs a destination or the soul needs a destination or it dies i don't mean that metaphysically i don't mean we need heaven we can't be lost in the woods like the pilgrim at the beginning. Yeah, I mean it emotionally or psychologically. Like if your road, if your path forward turns into 
a cyclical spiral in a dark place like a swamp or a woods that has no no opportunity for progression. Mm-hmm. That's hell. This mm-hmm. is my current thesis, that hell is best articulated by that sense of a hopeless lack of destination when your road turns into a pathless wood. That's that frost bone. Uh, birches. It's when I'm weary in considerations when life seems like a pathless wood, he says. Mm-hmm. I like that word, pathless, because there's no direction. There's no out. There's no... Yeah. You know what I mean? It is It is a very unpleasant feeling to be in a forest and when you stray from the path. I mean, at least I remember that as a kid. We used to explore a lot of forests, and sometimes we'd get so deep into a forest and not even see any paths anymore, and it was... It was frightening. It was just chaos, right? I mean, some of that can be exciting. Yeah. Within limits, that can be exciting to to go off the path and explore the unknown, to go into the darkness. We've talked about that in the context of other books. But just as a child, I'm saying. Well, even as a child, I'm not disagreeing with you, but even small amounts of that as a child. I mean, our son, all he wants to do when we go to the woods is get off the path. (laughs) He hates the path. Well, yeah, but then once you do and you realize, oh, this is why there are paths, because otherwise... You need a mix of both, for sure. I mean, yeah. you, need, you need to find out, I think, a life that is only the path. I mean, maybe this is an answer to our previous question about why Dante needs to go to hell, because... Uh-huh. And we'll actually, we'll talk about this when we get to Ulysses in a minute. Exploration is important and good. And also why he sometimes strays from the strict form of the... in the content... The quote-unquote rules of salvation. Yeah. It would be interesting, though, to see how how often he strays, if at all. You know what I mean? In rhyme or in... Yeah. But this is is my... I think that's why the gates of hell say, Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Mm -hmm. It might be... It's certainly an injunction, but it might be as much a description of the emotional state of the people who are there. The people yeah. who are there are, by definition, those who have abandoned hope. So it's descriptive as much as it is prescriptive. You know what I mean? Yeah, and maybe maybe this also answers one of my questions about pity. Maybe it's advice, abandon hope, because this is a place where you cannot change what has happened. And all of your desire to change it is going to be completely fruitless. And you'll just be or trying to change a thing that can't be changed. Well, they don't even... I don't think the sinners have a desire to change it. I think that's why they're there. Well, I mean, I, I meant the pilgrim. He does. He wishes he could help some of them. Mm. And he feels pity for some of them. And then Virgil says, don't feel pity. Well, take and us that and- moment in Canto 20. You're talking about that, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, this is a really interesting moment. Indeed, I did weep as I leaned my body against a jut of rugged rock, my guide. So you are still like all the other fools. In this place, piety lives when pity is dead. For who could be more wicked than that man who tries to bend divine will to his own? It's a very strange thing. It's so strange, coming from a poet who has very compassionately written about the fall of nations. Oh, yeah. And I've been trying to make sense of that. And I thought maybe maybe pity is defined in a different way in this book. I wonder what the Italian word is. Well, I don't know. <laughs> you should know. You know Italian, one of those annoying, One of those annoying people. I've, I've not progressed this far in my reading of the Italian, <laughs> but 
pity is used in the earlier cantos where I have gotten, and it's it's pieta. It's a very similar word. Well, um, but this is a word that even in English has about you know thirteen different definitions and twenty seven connotations. You know what I mean? So right. I looked at it. I read it as compassion, but then I thought maybe he doesn't mean compassion. Maybe Virgil is talking about something that goes beyond compassion, like an unbridled type of desire to change a thing that cannot be changed. Yeah. I'm I'm regularly and persistently confused by this poem, so this is one of the most vexing issues for me. I mean, um, I, I can't think of many things more wicked than a man who, who has pity. <laughs> you know what I mean? No. <laughs> so, so interesting. I cut you off. No, I was just going to echo your um, fascination and ambivalence about this. Mm. We get clues that Virgil, first of all, Dante puts Virgil in quote-unquote hell. Virgil doesn't have the quote-unquote light of Christ. Mm -hmm. So, Virgil's insight is limited. You True. know what I mean? You know what I mean? He's, he's a pagan who doesn't have Christianity, so therefore, inside the rules of this world, in, in the context of this poem, Virgil will get things wrong. Mm. And I think, well, maybe this is one of those things. Maybe this is the way in an instance of him doing his best as a pagan to kind of tell us the truth, but it's a kind of mm, interesting, you know, not quite true. I mean, I'm talking, of course, in the terms of Dante's, you know, religious metaphysics. Dante would look at this and say, "Well, good job, pagan. You're kind of doing your best. You're almost there, but it's a little bit garbled." You know what I mean? Maybe you know what? Maybe Virgil's even a bit resentful. He's like, "Don't pity us down here. There's nothing you can do." Yeah, I wouldn't. I, I mean, I was certainly wouldn't rule that out. And you know, we've talked about how they want to be here. This is they're where they want to be. But then again, are they subconsciously? You know I mean? Yeah, or they they get what they want with the veneer, the pleasing veneer of it stripped away. But you're right to point out that Virgil. I mean, in the Aeneid, this wonderful moment when Aeneas flees the burning city of Troy, takes his men, goes out on the sea. Lands in Carthage, and his him and his men are, you know, they're refugees. So mm -hmm. they're battered and weary and hungry and lost. Mm -hmm. And they land in this city, and on the, before they enter the city, there's this area where there's these stone friezes, and they can see carved in stone the story of the Battle of Troy, because it's taken them years to get here. So the fame of this story has preceded them. Yeah. And the people in Carthage have already started to immortalize, and Aeneas sees himself. <laughs> But Aeneas, like one of my favorite moments in world literature is Aeneas sees this frieze and starts to weep and says to his companion something very close to, even here our fame gives us protection or salvation. And then he says this wonderful, there are tears in, in the heart of things, sunt lacrimae rerum, right? There are tears in things or of things. But the point is that our, our story has reached the ends of the earth And because our story has become so famous, there will always be a safe harbor for us, which is beautiful. Yeah. So he's kind of weeping for him, his own story, his own fate, his own men, but, just but also rejoicing that this kind of the empathy of strangers, the pity of strangers yeah. is a safe harbor, is a sign that they will be welcomed yeah. and given some kind of rest. So yeah, to see this Virgil be like, Dante, don't, <laughs> don't cry for these sinners. That's mm -hmm. a sin. It's a sin to uh, go against the will of God. Don't have pity for them. We think, where's the old Virgil? 
Oh, yeah. You know what? I love that reading. That really makes me kind of rethink Virgil. I keep thinking of him as a saint because he's guiding the pilgrim, but he really isn't. He is a spiritual guide to, to the pilgrim in every way. But yeah, you're right. He is, after all, in hell. <laughs> and it could be really interesting to read him as somebody who is hopeless and maybe therefore has given up on wanting slash mm-hmm. wanting pity or wa- wanting to give it. It's pointless for him. But he does show pity, whatever that even means. <laughs> he does show compassion towards the pilgrim. Well, I mean... He does. I mean, what does Don- what does Virgil know about divine will, right? So when he says, in this place, piety lives when pity is dead, for who could be more wicked than that man who tries to bend divine will to his own? That That is a kind of more or less universal Christian precept that we should say, like Christ did, thy will be done. Mm-hmm. So Virgil is kind of quoting common Christian doctrine, but uh, in the first canto, Virgil says, I'm not welcome... I'll get you as far as purgatory, but I'm not welcome to take you into paradise. He -hmm. says that. Mm -hmm. So he kind of knows that he has limits to his own worldview. And when we get to purgatory, we'll see that instead of Virgil being the guide, they both become kind of co-equals because Virgil has been to Inferno before, Mm -hmm. but he's never been to the mountain of purgatory. When, When they get to purgatory, Dante will ask him questions and Virgil is just like shoulder shrug after shoulder shrug, has no idea. Interesting. We've kind of danced around this. How much pity should we have for these sinners? Um, uh-huh. we, I mean, we've talked about it before, but... Basically, every second of the Inferno screams. <laughs> have pity on us. Yes. I mean, the Pilgrim's constantly trying to humanize everyone there. He's seeing all the suffering. He wants to know names. He wants to know where you're from. He wants to know their stories. He, you know, all of that is what a person does who wants to feel compassion for someone, right? I completely agree. To try to make sense of Virgil's claim, though, one could argue that the will of God is the will of God. You call it the will of God, call it fate, call it how the universe is, call it nature. Hmm. It doesn't really matter what you call it. Destiny. To rebel against it in any way is counterproductive. I think this is a Marcus Aurelius point, isn't it? So... Perhaps why Christ says, thy will be done, is because he knows that if we try to kick against the universe, we'll just break our foot. You know, like, we could curse our fate that we're mortal and frail, and not change the fact that we're mortal and frail. Yeah. So, one could argue that a healthy response is to say, thy will, universe, be done. Let me be mortal and frail. This is a Nietzschean idea, the love of fate, you know, just, and his related idea of the eternal recurrence, let your life be what it is and be willing to relive it over and over and over again without wanting to change it, mm. without this constant drive to want to change it. Yeah. So for Dante to say, well, I pity you, how horrible, this is bad, this is bad. You can only... Well, it's a mini-rebellion that is that serves no purpose. Yeah. I mean, clearly the argument of this book is not to not feel compassion. But it is, yeah, maybe it is a suggestion... <laughs> <laughs> that uh, in excess, it helps no one. I mean, if you go overboard, you know, if you pity someone so much, you know, who is not even just religiously speaking here, but, you know, somebody who's ruined their lives, their life through that's, that's... negative actions, 
you can feel sorry for that person. Like, how could you have done this to yourself or other people, you know? But then to somehow hope that you could change the outcome, you know, that you could change karma, that that's not helpful. You're just kicking as you're sinking in the quicksand. And here's another idea. It's a very common, maybe the most common reaction to being pitied is resentment and anger. Don't pity me. People don't like being pitied. I mean, they like compassion and empathy, but pity has this added element of condescension. That's true. So... If it's done... Yeah. That's so there is, Not in everyone, So but. that could be another reason why Virgil isn't totally out to lunch here. Pity is... Self-righteous, maybe? Yeah, it's a kind of like... Uh, don't we feel it as some kind of affront to our dignity? Oh, no, I'm being pitied. It depends on how it's done. And, some people are really sensitive. Well, a related to issue is that as they keep going down further and further, the souls in Inferno want anonymity. Oh, yeah. Which we'll get to. You know, they don't... That's true. really want to... The famous T.S. Eliot epigraph that he stole from this. There's that one soul that says to Dante, if I thought, kind of again, revealing that the souls in hell are ignorant. They don't really, ha they don't have total or even very complete knowledge. He says to Dante, if I thought that my story would get out into the world, I wouldn't tell it. But since I know that no one returns from this realm back to earth, I'll tell you. All right. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Not knowing that Dante will return and tell the story. So yeah. there's some kind of like people in the depths don't want light. They don't want to be seen. Mm. These people, what characterizes, what is the difference between the souls in hell and the souls in purgatory? We've said it before, but it's worth repeating again. People in purgatory are suffering, and they are suffering as bad, and they are suffering for the exact same sins, but their suffering is endurable and even redemptive because they have admitted guilt. I think there's two main differences. That's the first. Souls in purgatory admit guilt. Mm -hmm. No soul in the inferno admits guilt. And admitting guilt is also a sort of act of hope, isn't it? A hope that things could maybe be amended in some way, or right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, That maybe there will be forgiveness. That's right. I mean, this leads me to my second thing. There's two main differences. The souls in Inferno don't admit guilt, and therefore there's no destination. So yeah. they're, they're locked in this hopeless spiral. Mm -hmm. Souls in Purgatory say, I am guilty. It was my fault. Instead of Francesca saying, love did this to me, they did this to me. Mm. Ugolino, I was more sinned against than sinning. Mm -hmm. Purgatory people say, I did it. It was my fault. And that opens a kind of like, oh, uh, if I did it, if it was my fault, I can do otherwise. Yeah. Maybe. And suddenly a, a slight crack, the doorway opens a crack and light starts to pour in. Yeah, that's interesting too. They are not honest to themselves about... No, not at all. ...what has happened and what they need to do to right. make a change. Let's look at some specific examples. Um, we're passing a few great similes. One thing I love about the epic similes of this is like how Dante gives us a map of Europe. Yeah, within a completely different realm. Yeah, all of the similes point back to a specific city oh, yeah. or a specific named mountain or named river or named country. It's very moving. He's taking such an abstract concept. You know, he's taking hell, the undiscovered country, and he gives it, not only does he map it, but he gives it the characteristics of the places he loves. Mm. I find it extremely moving. I'm not sure why. It's like a homesickness. I want you to say more while I give you an example. 
This is the beginning of Canto 21. In the vast and busy shipyard of the Venetians, there boils all winter long a tough, thick pitch that is used to cock the ribs of unsound ships. Since winter will not let them sail, they toil. Some build new ships, others repair the old ones, plugging the planks come loose from many sailings. Some hammer at the bow, some at the stern. One carves the oars while others twine the ropes. One mends the jib, one patches up the mainsail. Here too, but heated by God's art, not fire, a sticky tar was boiling in the ditch that smeared the banks with vicious residue. Mm. <laughs> so oh, so it's this I wonderful... Yeah, Venice, I know, 700 years ago, it was it was already a magical place. All these named places, like Dante wants to tell people reading, you've been to Venice, you know how the shipbuilders there will boil their tar to cock the ships? Mm-hmm. I kind of saw that gross, sticky substance down there too, and he'll always attach places in hell to places, named places on earth, and you think it's a kind of, it's a, it's a sign of love in some way or something. Oh yeah, it's a, it's a homesickness. I mean, the thing that you think about most, right, is what you cherish the most and treasure the most. So he, his mm. reference points are constantly home. I like that. That's um. where his metaphors come from. I mean, why do you think it's moving? Mm. Yeah, I'm not sure I could add anything to what you've just said. It's a love of the earth that is a love of it's a love of creation and of humankind's additions to creation it's it's not just like the natural world cities and valleys but it's also artistic production mechanical production mm. look at those shipbuilders in venice it's amazing and look at those the builders of dikes in, in the netherlands it's amazing what we can do you know mm-hmm. it's a kind of celebration of human power or human industry human fortitude mm. yeah and it's interesting that He's using a lot of these um, beautiful places to help describe hell. It's as if the pilgrim can't help himself from always trying to make something beautiful. Well, here we go. You know what I mean? Let's go to, is that a sin? So in Canto 26, he says this, maybe the best example of what we're talking about. It's Canto 26, so it's quite deep down in hell. Dante says, as many fireflies... In the season when the one who lights the world hides his face least, in the hour when the flies yield to mosquitoes, as many fireflies as the peasant on the hillside at his ease sees, flickering in the valley down below, where perhaps he gathers grapes or tills the soil, with just so many flames all the eighth bulgia shone brilliantly, as I became aware when at last I stood where the depths were visible. So, all these little pockets contain a soul burning in a, f- in, f- in a flame and Dante looks out over this vast sea of burning souls and, and says it was just like those summer nights when a shepherd lies down on the hillside and looks out at the field and the fireflies rise up I know this is a homesick man talking <laughs> it's a poem of exile on every page exile yeah it's but so it's more than that I mean he could have seen fireflies in Ravenna you know where he ended up but so it's got to be more than that. It has something to do with what you just said earlier. Like, is it what moral? How are we to react morally to his making hell beautiful? I know, right? I mean, you would think if I were to try to, I'm actually going to try because of him. I'm going to try to make up my own hell. <laughs> It'd be an interesting experiment, you know what I mean? This should be good. What do you mean? <laughs> just as a thought experiment, maybe. 
a quick writing experiment, you know, because I think as I try to map out hell and describe certain horrible aspects of it, you know, once I get to the first metaphor, I'd be like, I, I would try to choose something ugly from Earth, some horrible place. Yeah. The main train station at Frankfurt. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Or Konstablerwache. There's some bad subway stations in Frankfurt, Germany. Anyway, um, I, I wouldn't be talking about the first, about horror frost, you know, and farmers and fireflies and Venice. I, I, I don't think he didn't think it through well enough you know what i mean <laughs> he's smarter than that so i wonder i mean he's a poet through and through he i think that that's that's a big part of it poetry always wins for him yeah um the making of the, the making of beauty that's yeah. is even more important to him than theology you know there's no theological argument there's no christian doctrine this is my reading it's probably wrong but my reaction to this poem is that there's no Christian dogma, there's no theological argument that is more important to him. Those are important to him, mm. but none are more important to him than the making of beauty. He's yeah. a poet first. Yeah, he might be. He might have the job, the difficult job of describing hell, but he's not going to not use his uh, huge, rich, you know, treasure chest of Italian. Yeah. Images, but this doesn't let him off the hook, though, does it? He he doesn't he have a moral obligation to not make hell so appealing and beautiful? Well, he doesn't all the time. It's almost kind of blasphemous. Like these burning souls were beautiful, like fireflies. The the juxtaposition between the the vehicle and the tenor of this metaphor is shocking. I mean, it's the same as putting a form on hell. That's true. Yeah, you know, a poem. Hell is a poem. Yeah. He's turning it into a beautiful sounding song. Well, it's almost, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to backtrack, but it's almost kind of back to this love of fate or um, we have to love the universe as it is because it's the universe that we have. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? And there are hellish aspects of it. So we can accept it as it is. Not to say we can't make improvements. The souls in purgatory prove that we can make improvements, but there will be some aspects of it that remain hellish. No matter what. And we need to, we need to, I don't know what we need to do, but I think we can either accept that that will always be the case and include them in our song of the universe, or what's the alternative? We become genocidal, murderous nihilists mm. saying no to creation because it has dark corners. So Dante is like, well, I'm, I'm saying yes to the universe, the dark corners and everything that they have to be in here there's a place for them our deepest fears including burning in hell <laughs> suffering yeah. in hell i'm going to make them beautiful and farts <laughs> yeah farts i know there's a so, lot of weirdo yeah <laughs> so we should talk, and farts. can we talk about this for five minutes there's a fart in this poem <laughs> we both this is a matter of great interest to me <laughs> It's a matter of great interest to me, this flatulence. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's just because I'm silly and immature, although I am those things. But you, there's nothing more sublime. On the mountain of sublime poetry, there is no peak above Dante. I mean, Shakespeare is as good. I'm not saying that 
he's higher than everyone else. But you know what I mean? There's nowhere higher than Dante. It's not you can't get more sublime in any art form than Dante, right? You would think that the implication is there are certain aspects of of existence that would taint or spoil or undercut this achievement of of utter sublimity. Mm-hmm. How does Dante make this? Are there things that poets can't write about or shouldn't write about? The implication is no, but what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's all about how you do it. There's a way to do there's a way to approach the least likely images. And what is that way? <laughs> <laughs> the magic way is <laughs> you know, Picasso can paint anything because he does it with his confident seemingly spontaneous brush strokes, you know what I mean? You can paint anything. You could paint a cat wearing underwear. <laughs> Does he? <laughs> no. <laughs> but he could. He could. He could paint anything. And I would be like, oh, yeah. That's, My. that's through his eyes that works. It must have something to do with a kind of childlike confidence. It's the confidence, yeah. And on an authority we often talk about. Yeah, com- though, neither of those words are perfect, though. No. It's a kind of childlike it doesn't even occur to these people that it's a childlike lack of self-consciousness. Mm-hmm. And also, you know what? Uh, <laughs> this idea is from a Milos poem where he says to glorify things just because they are. And maybe that has something to do with it. You get a sense, um, for example, in a Picasso painting of a thing that of an image you might never have thought to put in a painting, that his choosing that image is just his way of saying, let's glorify all things just because they exist. Even a fart. <laughs> Even your fart. <laughs> okay. Look at how, let's not where, go- how, we, how we've fallen, where we've come. I don't know. About Speaking that. of dark wood. Oh, I don't know, man. <laughs> It's in there. You know, it's just, it's proof to me that great art has no rules. There's no boundaries. You can't, I mean, as, as, as prescriptive as he is, as formally rigorous as he is, as systematic and serious <laughs> and earnest and sincere as he is, there's nothing beneath his attention. Yeah. We should move on. We've given this fart no. No, more time than it deserves or not enough. Oh, let's move on. We're, we're not going to improve the topic of conversation because we move from the fart to, like, for example, people chewing on each other's skulls. So, are you sure you want to move on is one question. You know what? I do. <laughs> <laughs> I love this bit about Ulysses. So, this is in Canto 26 with the fireflies. They see the soul of Ulysses in the circle of, um, I guess you could call them false counselors. And, you know, Ulysses is in hell because, this might be slightly complicated, but you know, the Trojan horse, his clear kind of trickery. He's always kind of lying and cheating his way out of scenarios. This is not a virtuous way to live. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'll read some of this. And my question is related to the Francesca and Paolo scene. I think Dante is pausing here over Ulysses because he sees in Ulysses a kindred soul. So in what way is my question? Okay. Ulysses begins to speak. And we can tell where Tennyson gets his idea for his great poem. What is what is both sinful and admirable about this attitude? These are Ulysses' words. When I set sail from Circe, 
who more than a year had kept me occupied close to Gaeta. Not sweetness of a son, not reverence for an aging father, not the debt of love I owed Penelope to make her happy, could quench deep in myself the burning wish to know the world and have experience of all men's vices, of all human worth. So I set out on the deep and open sea with just one ship and with that group of men, not many, who had deserted me. I saw as far as Spain, far as Morocco, both shores. I had left behind Sardinia and the other islands which the sea encloses. I and my mates were old and tired men. You know, you, Tennyson instantly comes to mind. Oh, yeah. Old age, old age had yet his honors and his toil, mm. though much is taken, much abides. Anyway, mm. Ulysses continues. Then finally we reached the narrow neck where Her Hercules put up his signal pillars to warn men not to go beyond that point. Brothers, I said, who through a hundred thousand perils have made your way to reach the west, during the so brief vigil of our senses that is still reserved for us, do not deny yourself experience of what there is beyond, behind the sun, in the world they call unpeopled. With this brief exhortation, I made my crew so anxious for the way that lay ahead that then I hardly could have held them back, and with our stern turned toward the morning light and made our oars our wings for that mad flight, gaining distance, always sailing to the left. So, he convinces his men to do something that maybe they wouldn't have done or didn't want to do, you know? Yeah, that's Dante right there going into hell, going through hell. Well, the pilgrim um, is seems to have that same um, desire and yearning to know the worth of men and the, and the vices of men, specifically the vices. You know, he's walking through hell, traveling yeah. through hell and learning about the vices and... And looking for worth in these people, too, even in hell, right? Yeah, he's an explorer. He's an explorer. The un And he goes, you know, beyond the sun. That's exactly right. I didn't read the little bit where Ulysses says, we saw this mountain in the distance, and this oh, is wow, yeah. Mount Purgatory, where Dante yeah. goes next. You know what I mean? So, it's yeah. like Dante is almost following the, in the exact same footsteps as this, quote-unquote, sinner. Mm -hmm. Is this so bad, this craving for experience? to want experience, to explore, to set out, to go beyond. I'm quite attracted to this attitude. I am too. Should, should we be wary of it? You know, it's kind of interesting. I, I'm reading a book right now about Diane Arbus, and this, this reminds me of her right now because she was very attracted to so-called freaks. <laughs> yeah. And she would go into very scary places. She had this I mean, overwhelming yearning to know the strange and the um, desolate and... And the dark. Yeah, and the rejected and yeah, and freaks, yeah. And she felt a kinship in them, too, uh, with them. And she's, you know, often criticized for that, for kind of exploiting people that are different. So um, I wonder to what degree... I mean, I wonder how far is too far. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, that's interesting, because there's clearly these words that I kept reading in there, like boundary and beyond and behind. Let's go beyond where we should go. Let's go behind the sun. Mm. It's clearly this this sense here that there are limits that we shouldn't go beyond, that maybe some exploration is good and normal, but we have to know where to stop. Yeah. Even with the idea of pity, she had such um she was so fascinated by these people she... um 
painted portraits of that to the point where, you know, she would seek like intimacy with them and even, <laughs> you know, have relationships with them and like sleep with them and boundaries were crossed for sure. But were they? <laughs> but were they? Yeah. I don't know. Two times I read there, Ulysses says, I wanted experience. Yeah. We go out because we want experience. Well, I see this in our kids. They want new, they want things to happen that mm-hmm. haven't happened yet. I think that's what our kids want most. They yeah, want, they want, yeah. Like that's, that's their wildest dreams, just for something to happen that hasn't happened yet. Yeah. I think that's totally like, that's a human, that, that is not a wish that should be called sinful. Mm-hmm. Ulysses, what, 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 where, then where lies the sin? Maybe it's Ulysses saying, I had these other obligations, like my, this duty to my father, this love for my son, this love for my wife, Penelope. I ignored all that. Is, mm-hmm. So maybe that's the sin. Yeah. You know, like we, Once you start to hurt people. Yeah, we neglect everything. Everyone is expendable in our satisfying this craving for experience. That's clearly bad. Mm-hmm. Um, convincing people to come with you that maybe you shouldn't, you know, come my men. And slowly I, I persuaded them. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe don't. Right, yeah, and, I don't and putting their lives at risk while they have families at home. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Familial duties. How does this translate into day-to-day life? I mean, we're not an explorer. I mean, Dante says, "I am at the very in Canto Two. I am no Paul. I am no Aeneas." But then he becomes one of these travelers, one of these great Ulysses. So, well, yeah, but we're we are travelers in our minds. You know what I mean? Maybe excessive daydreaming or. <laughs> imagining can hurt us okay i like that idea that hadn't occurred to me but a kind of ulysses who i mean think about going home to ithaca you know you're the king you can reign on uninterrupted you're back with your wife shouldn't that be enough this grass is always greener on the other side syndrome is is a kind of hell because it's never you're never going to be satisfied Mm -hmm. bhagavad gita kind of point like of course that's going to be a hell this is a thought that had not occurred to me. So yeah. learning to be content with what is and what you have mm-hmm. is how we escape this particular brand of Inferno. Yeah. And the question is, how can we be content with, how can we be content with what we have, but still foster a healthy, sounds so boring. <laughs> how can we be content with what we have and still foster a healthy sense of exploration? Because we would never tell our children not to explore. I feel bad. I'm constantly bringing Nietzsche up. Nietzsche says, live dangerously. That's his advice. Mm. I think it's it's hard advice to take, but it's hard to disagree with, too. You know, yeah. I, it's like advice. I, I'm always filtering this through the, sense of, the lens of parenthood, like giving this advice to our children. It would be hard for me, but it would be hard not to. I mean, I feel advice. like I feel live like, dangerously. Go out, take risks. I feel like you take that advice really well when you take the kids to uh, <laughs> that a horrible trampoline place where you have to sign a waiver that's before you safest, go in. That's the safest, most boring, most bland, <laughs> most unnichean, most suburban, most boring, most middle-aged, most cliche. Bones break. They do not. Bones protrude. They do not. Isaac wants to go to the Amazon jungle. He said to me before, I want to go to a place that has dangerous animals, poisonous snakes, natural disasters. He's used that, that exact, those exact phrases. 
I want to go there. Maybe he, the, he wants to live dangerously. I was about to say, maybe our lives are just too easy now, but I guess... Yes, I think they are. They are, but at the same time, it seems like this desire has existed from day one on our I mean, Earth. They are too easy, but I'm not saying that that's bad. I'm not saying that I would trade it. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It just comes with downsides. You know, we want to be out there hunting mammoths because that's in our bones. That's what we were trained genetically to do. I don't crave living dangerously. I can admit that. <laughs> uh, well, you must. There must be some part of you that does. I think. Maybe in the music I listen to. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> yes. But what is it about that blank canvas thing? Um, the empty, the Tao Te Ching thing? Oh, well, no, there's no canvas to that. But the Tao is present in every beginning. The Tao contains danger. I mean, so you you do want some danger. You know, the blank canvas is dangerous because it presents you with the chance to fail. True. We should move on, shouldn't we? <laughs> Why is it cold in hell and not hot? Yeah, it is interesting that it's cold in hell. He even compares it at some point to uh, the mountains in Austria. Another yeah, beautiful reference. Yeah. <laughs> but that must have some kind of psychological, emotional, religious uh, implication. The coldness? Yeah, the coldness. Yeah, a void of... The warmth of the... Well, there's no love. Yeah. Fire of hope. No light of hope. No flame of... <laughs> okay, that's enough. <laughs> no, I mean, you're, this is good, I think. There's no energy. Uh-huh. This goes back to what I was saying about hopelessness. Like, motion creates heat. Mm. You know, it's how you warm yourself up on a cold winter day. You, you start jogging. Mm. Or rubbing your hands together, friction, you know, creates heat. So it's a, perhaps an effect of ultimate stagnation. Where there is ultimate stasis, of course it's going to get cold. Yeah. As soon as there's progression, there's going to be warmth. Mo movement of any kind, you know. <laughs> movement of any kind. Paolo and Francesca, they just want what they have, so they stay there. They stay there. They don't yeah. move. Skipping a lot of great... Uh, this idea of contrapasso or the punishment somehow fits the crime. Did you have any favorites? Like, I love the hypocrites in lead cloaks. That was great to me. Yeah, that was cool. Um, or the schismatics who are, they sow discord in their religions or their sects, and so they are literally tearing their bodies in half. Yeah, that was gross. Those uh, frozen tears were really odd. I, that's exactly where I wanted to go now. So they get to this lake in which there are half-submerged people mm -hmm. locked in the ice and some heads are sticking up. And Dante, I won't go to the exact moment here, but um, Dante trips over one, accidentally kicks this guy in the head. Yeah. And, he, and the, the man starts complaining, be more careful, you know. Mm. Dante asks who this man is and the man kind of evades the question. And so Dante starts ripping his hair out. You will tell me who you are. Oh, yeah. In this fit of anger, Dante starts tearing at this man's hair. A fistful of hair. Like, that's a lot Came of hair. out, yeah. <laughs> Virgil approves of this. Virgil looks on smiling. I know. Proudly. How do you react to this change in our pilgrim? This is a... He's gone from fainting and weeping and volunteering to relay messages to the loved ones of the dead to um, physically assaulting them. In a kind of righteous <laughs> rage. I don't know if this is the point of the book, but I feel like the pilgrim has, hell has gotten to him. 
the hopelessness of hell and the disregard for life and and he started to become numb to all these images of suffering or maybe maybe not numb but uh it's almost as if he's starting to enjoy the punishments and wanting to be a part of that if you stare into the abyss the abyss will stare back into you kind of a thing is that what's happened to him yeah i mean he's become hardened or this is a rabbit duck more righteous, more accepting of God's will. If this is the divine will, right. yes, that's why I said I don't know if the pill, if Dante wrote it this way, but I'm I see it that way because I'm smarter than Dante. <laughs> <laughs> Just well, kidding. I can't. My bot. The way my body reacts to this moment is to be like ashamed and embarrassed for Dante. I miss. I miss the the swooning, weeping Dante. I don't like this hair puller i don't like him no you know what i mean so like you can maybe logically persuade me that this is him being a kind of like dante is now enacting the judgment of god and this is as it should be but i viscerally recoil from that reading and i think no you've you've become corrupted in a way he's become less yeah he's become less he he's like one of the characters one of the caricatures in the yeah in hell right because we go from him to Ugolino, but before we get to Ugolino, how you mentioned the tears. They're weeping down there, but it's so cold that they the tears freeze, so there's this cake this this ice starts to build up, this, yeah. this caking of ice. Yeah. That imprisons them. Yeah. This one poor guy asks, like, just please before you leave, just break this ice that's formed around my face. Break it. Mm. In in real life, our tears flow down our face. They're warm and they dry. You know, things yeah. improve, things get better. Even if your circumstances don't fully change your tears, you know, they dry eventually and you you do eventually start, stop crying. There's no emotion that always stays the same. But um, Well, what you said about them being warm, it never occurred to me. This is an yeah. extremely wise thing to say. It is extremely wise. <laughs> <laughs> no, but they're even denied the warmth of their own tears, you know what I mean? There is a kind of solace in in grief. Mm. I mean, we, we learn from the Iliad that grief can become anger, you know, if overindulged in can become as sweet as honey and can pathologically you can hold on to it. But there is such a thing as proper grief. There is such a thing as proper grief that becomes consoling, yeah. and, you know, properly warm. Yeah. So these sinners are denied even the warmth of their own grief. They're they're denied the the ability to vent their grief in a healthy way. Yeah, and that becomes part of their punishment. Yeah, because there's no hope. Uh, the tears just keep uh, amassing. That's great. The, the the grief, you know, when you when you're mourning, you're supposed to mourn and you're supposed to cry, and then it stops. Yeah, it wanes. You know, it, 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 the tears stop. Um, and there's no trace of them left here. There's always a visible trace, and it becomes part of the cage. Mm-hmm. It's almost, uh, it reminds me a bit of Lot's wife becoming a pillar of salt. Well, they're encased in their own pillar, uh, pillars of salt, kind of. Yeah. But from looking back, but never being able to look ahead, right? Yeah, that's interesting. There's no hope. Yeah, that's interesting. You see two encased in this ice, they see a man chewing on the skull of another man. Canto There's 30. so much cannibalism. Canto 33 <laughs> begins, Lifting his mouth from his horrendous meal, this sinner first wiped off his messy lips, and the hair remaining 
on the chewed-up skull, then spoke. You want me to renew a grief so desperate that just the thought of it, much less the telling, grips my heart with pain. But if my words can be the seed to bear the fruit of infamy for this betrayer who feeds my hunger, then I shall speak in tears. Wonderful opening. I will tell my story if it can go some way into hurting this man (laughs) whose head I'm chewing on. (laughs) So even in hell, all he wants is to hurt this guy. Telling the story is hard for me. I'm now speaking in the voice of Ugolino. Telling the story is hard for me. I will inflict pain on myself if the result is that he also experiences pain. (laughs) I think we do this all the time. I'm willing to inflict pain on me if it inflicts pain on that person I want to, to feel pain. Oh, yeah. We will, we will happily accept pain if it means hurting people. I feel like as a teenager, I, I did this to my parents. Yeah. Purposely hurt myself in some way. I mean, you know, by making bad choices. Right. In order to spite them. Well, and I still do this in many different ways, I'm sure. <laughs> Not just as a teenager. Yeah, sure. I mean, we all do this in small ways. I, I'll go ahead and not unload the dishwasher to to uh, get back at you. But it's like, who am I hurting? Right. I mean, I live in this house, too. Mm-hmm. Stupid. Right. You know what I mean? It's so, so stupid and petty. <laughs> um, he goes on to tell the story of being locked in this tower. The door is nailed shut, killed with his sons by starvation. The sons, in this horrific image, offer themselves up to their father to help assuage his hunger. Mm-hmm. You know, eat us. They say that. Yeah. Um, he says no at first. They die. And then he says this horrific line. Eventually, hunger proved more powerful than grief, implying that he eventually did get into his hunger and ate them. This is not why he's in hell. It's not for cannibalism. He's in hell because he did equally horrible things to the person who nailed him in this tower. It's the person whose head he's chewing on now. Mm-hmm. So there's this rivalry. There's this There's this lifelong battle between the two of them that never ends. And it's ongoing. And this is... So, I, I don't know. We kind of touched on this earlier. Maybe we should move on for the sake of time. But why is Ugolino telling us this story? And what effect does it have on us? We've been talking a lot about pity. Yeah. When you read this bit, how did you feel about him? How did you react? Nobody deserves to have have their heads chewed on or anything like that. But they're obviously, to them, their anger is so sweet, you know, to referring to Achilles, Mm. that they they have let their anger and their, like, taste for anger take them all the way to hell. You know, they're still, like, reveling in it. (laughs) The taste thing is important. It's called a meal. You know, this guy's skull is called a meal, so he wants to taste it. You know, it's... Yeah. I'm addicted to the taste of his rage. Oh, yeah. It's a thing. Yeah. Trust me, I know. (laughs) (laughs) What does that mean? Explain your love of Rammstein? No, no. Yeah, probably. (laughs) (laughs) I just think it's a great um, psychological game that's being played on us. For for a long time, a few readings, a few times through the Inferno, I thought, poor Ugolino, what a horrible way to go, you know? And it finally dawned on me after too long, like, wait a minute. He's only telling the story so that we'll feel bad for him. He's guilty of equally bad things. Yeah. It's a very slimy rhetorical move on his part. So pity, what are we learning about pity? It can be 
it's risky because it can be used like a weapon, like, you know, about Charles Manson. Maybe this is too extreme an example, but it's people who are like, well, don't pay attention to the bad things I did. Let me, let me instead tell you the story of all the bad things that have happened to me. Right. Those bad things can be true, but it can be a kind of defense. They hide behind this to justify things they've done or to divert attention. Yeah, that's very true. Again, like Ugolino never, ever, ever says, I am guilty. Mm-hmm. We don't even know. It's hard reading this canto, isn't it? To know why he's in hell. Yeah. We have to go to the footnotes to find out because he conspicuously doesn't tell us. Yeah. Pity can be used as a as a trap. I mean, it is very childish, too. This is what kids do. They'll come to us with half a story. She did this to me. Mm-hmm. And she did. But there was a first chapter in this novel in which you did that to her. Yeah. And that is never told. Um, they go down, Canto 34, and see this uh, beast, Satan, Satan the Beast. Mm-hmm. What is your reaction to Dante's version of Satan? Oh, I... Let's describe him first. He is enormous. He's gigantic. Yeah. Winged. Yeah. He has three faces. He is locked in ice, kind of up to his waist. His wings are flapping futilely because mm-hmm. he can't get anywhere chewing each of his faces is chewing on various sinners judas brutus cassius the three great betrayers mm-hmm. and he, he's, he doesn't say anything he doesn't do anything he doesn't act so how did you react to this i mean dante could have invented any kind of character i know it was uh, powerfully anticlimactic <laughs> it's very interesting that you say that yeah why well, I want to hear more from you first. <laughs> you go first. <laughs> well, before I started reading it, right, I, I was expecting Satan to be kind of all over the place, commanding his armies and mm. being a, you know, an, an active part of hell. The commander. <laughs> active is the key word. Exactly, yeah. Something like out of Milton, like some dynamic presence. Exactly. Instead, it's just the speechless, yeah. disabled, I shouldn't say disabled, um, immobile. Yeah. Almost pathetic. Frozen mid-fall. Yeah. Yeah, just beast, like an animal, right? It's just an animal. See, I said it. it it's yeah. He feels like an animal without a brain. I mean, yeah. He's um, not really human. No. Just a stupid, uh, stupid beast. <laughs> I'm saying stupid because, uh, you know, there's not even any, like, cunning language or anything. There's no language at all. No. Super fascinating. Uh, tell us why. I mean, you've probably already answered this question. That's anticlimactic because we wanted a great speech? Yes. <laughs> I wanted a speech from Satan. <laughs> well, why did Dante not give us one? I say that's interesting you say that because this is T.S. Eliot's. He says, he, t- he tells in his essay on Dante, he says, you're going to find this anticlimactic because it kind of is. Yeah. And he says this thing I've never quite been able to wrap my mind around. Maybe we will be able to collectively when we get to the end of Paradise. But he says, a reader has to get to the very end of the Divine Comedy all the way to the last canto of Paradise in order to make fullest sense of this version of Satan. Hmm. Um, but we can start guessing, you know, what is it? Why, why choose this kind of Satan? What are we being taught about the nature of evil? Or, I mean, I don't have any specific answers. 
I think it seems like the people who are the most evil or do the most evil things, they give up a, a lot of agency. They give up their thinking, their ability to make decisions in many ways. It seems like they're just following some terrible instinct, mm. some animal instinct. And yeah, of course, then the source of all evil would be some kind of beast, right? It's the I like that answer a lot. It's the ultimate rejection of, um, you know, he, God, so the story goes, created the world, created the animal kingdom, and then into the human, he breathed something special, something divine, some spark mm -hmm. that he didn't bestow upon the animals. Yeah. And Satan has rejected this gift. Satan has rejected this divine gift, so he's self-animalized. You know, he's he rejects the gift means that he rejects... Rejecting the gift means that he rejects what it means to be a human. Yeah. And he's he's de-evolved, you know. He has yeah. no divine and therefore no human. These are almost synonymous attributes, divine and human. No human trace, no divine trace. Mm-hmm. And a slave to a weird animal instinct, right? You mean wing flapping? Yeah. <laughs> Chewing and wing flapping? Yeah. Yeah. There's something about that wing flapping, too, that is the source of the wings. So he's this fallen angel, so of course he has wings. Wings are the things that... <laughs> wings are the things that get you I altitude. Hope are made of. <laughs> well, you joke. <laughs> but we have been talking about hope and movement and direction. Wings help you ascend. They are what make you ascend. So ironically, they are what make hell cold. He flaps the wings and Virgil has this very semi-Aristotelian meteorological... Virgil becomes a weatherman. And he's like, well, you see, hell is cold because Satan is flapping his wings. So there's all this wind and it makes the water freeze. And uh, I just find it interesting that it's that part of Satan, the part that could have made him ascend that is now causing hell. The our, gifts, our gifts that we don't use become a curse. Yeah, I think it's like, or, or we can become evil to the exact same degree that we have the potential to become good. Like Hitler, mm. <laughs> you know, like he has all these gifts. The ability to move people. I don't know. We don't have to list them. You know, you read biographies. He has all these gifts and he is able to commit evil in proportion to those gifts. Yeah. But this is true of all of us. It's true of me and it's true of you. It's not just true of the quote unquote bad because we're all, we're all bad to some degree. We, we have to be extra careful of our gifts that we don't make them satanic. Mm. I think. Um, his face is apparently three faces. Interesting. He's kind of this anti trinity. Yeah. You and know. it also feels, uh, like a t worse version than two faced, <laughs> right? Three faced. Oh. Yeah. Well, it is. I mean, he has no. Yeah, we wanted some kind of Iago. Yeah. Some kind of like. <laughs> Walking around on the stage with soliloquy. Yeah, we wanted charisma. Mm. So he has three faces, but kind of no brain. You know, <laughs> he's, all, he's all face, no substance or something like that. You know, there's no. There's nothing there. Mm. Anyway. Um, what is that thing? Isn't, isn't he always facing a certain direction? I don't know about that. Oh, okay, maybe I'm going to bring it. But I do know that he. It's how weird is the ending of the Inferno? It's so weird, right? You couldn't invent weirder science fiction. So, 
They are right down in the bottom. I think this is more or less the center of the earth. Jules Verne esque, right? They're at the center of the earth. And Dante says, Virgil says, follow me. They go down to Satan, mm-hmm. start climbing on Satan. So Satan is this giant animal. Harry. They start climbing on his fur mm-hmm. down. Mm-hmm. And Dante says this very weird detail. He says, like, we climbed in that place where the the thigh meets the hip or something. They're clearly on his backside, you know. Are you thinking fart again? Well, I'm thinking that the, the very bottom of hell is Satan's bottom. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Virgil makes that... Virgil. Dante makes that clear. It's in... I'm not making that up. That's in the poem. I know. Then we were on Satan's butt. It's outrageous. It is outrageous. You know? It's like... They're going all the way down into the pits of hell. <laughs> the pits of the pits. Think about what he's done here. He's written a poem that, first of all, invents a kind of hell that didn't is not scriptural. He's put popes in it. He has asserted himself as a kind of moral authority to, ha- to be given permission to see it. He's asserted Beatrice as this kind of a woman he's not married to as this kind of divine godlike person who isn't God, you know. Who is uh, extremely interested in his salvation. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> He's chosen Virgil, a poet, to guide him, given Virgil pride of place, not a theologian, not a saint. You know, it could have been St. Peter or someone. Uh, and he is talking about Satan's backside. It's like heresy after blasphemy after provocation. That's what this poem is. I think if Dante hadn't have been exiled before writing this poem, he would have been exiled for writing it. It's outrageous. You know, I think it's super interesting that they're literally climbing on Satan. It's such an intimate experience. That means something. It's it's almost, um, I don't want to say sexual, but it is very, very physical. They're literally crawling, you know. Yeah. On Satan, they're getting, like, really intimate with him. <laughs> they're grasping on his fur, I mean. Like an embrace, almost. And so, what happened, uh, so you, we have to talk more about that. So, there's this wonderful moment where Dante says something like, and then I realized that I wasn't climbing down anymore, I was climbing up. So, they're at the center of the earth, and then they're up. They're, so, they're going down, 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 mm-hmm. down, and then suddenly up, they're going up mm-hmm. to the other side of the earth. So, there's this weird thing where Inferno is at the exact other side of the world, the exact opposite of Mount Purgatory or something. Dante has this whole geography of the planet. It's quite, it's quite scientific and detailed. But in order to, in order for the descent to into hell to end and anything like an ascent to begin, I heard an accidental pun there. Oof. They have to get, they have to touch Satan. Mm-hmm. They can't avoid this. It's not like, and then we glimped Satan and quickly ran past. It's not enough to hear of evil but you have to like get intimate with it up close and personal is that true is that true that like to get out of hell you have to grasp you have to embrace satan it's very weird but we must be being every every aspect of this book means something we didn't talk about the layering like you can read this book linearly but you can also read it in a stacked way so canto five of inferno has echoes of canto five of purgatory which has echoes of canto five for example of paradise so every detail matters we're being taught something about 
our encounter relationship with evil here i don't think there's a choice you know what i mean i don't think it's an option not to get intimate with satan <laughs> i think to live in this world it's going to happen you know what i mean there's going to be a point where you have to to stare at evil not just stare but experience evil not create evil that's not what i'm saying but face it truly face it and um because it's in you because it's in you and if you don't accept that fact then how then you're just on your way to being a yeah. brainless beast right or like the sinners in hell where it's like it's not me it's not my fault it's not my fault yeah you have to see things for what they are you have to accept there is good and there is evil in the world including me and um and maybe a, one of the greatest sins or mistakes in life is trying to ignore that trying to live in ignorant bliss of it you know yeah. what i mean or in being yeah in being in denial exactly because why is it bad to deny that evil exists how can you help anyone if you don't acknowledge that there's evil yeah exactly you you things this is why you know this is why the holocaust museum exists and why everyone should go you yeah. you, you have to see it yeah it's not, you're not going to like seeing it that's right that's but a, that's a good way of walking through the holocaust museum is an intimate encounter with evil mhm i mean it's as intimate as we can get without you know having been in the camps ourselves there are artifacts from the camps preserved for us to see and right and the photographs horrible photographs of it so that we don't yeah so otherwise we can pretend this isn't possible right we forget that it's possible right so he gets as literally as he he, he gets as close to satan as possible i kind of am crazy about that ending it's so out of this world it's like science fiction isn't there's, there's n nothing weirder in any <laughs> nothing weirder in the world than that satan is at the very center of the earth unfortunately i keep picturing that stupid um movie the never-ending story <laughs> oh, the giant furry beast but he's good though isn't he i yes, can't remember he is he's coming to mind but yeah it's very sci-fi i just want to say here before we end that the inferno gets read way more often than the other two and we will be getting to the other two right oh yeah um it's not the end it's, uh, it's very easy to stop here because the Inferno is the most kind of darkly attractive, most exciting. I guess you could argue. I think my favorite's the Purgatory, and the Paradiso is also nonstop fireworks. How could it not be? <laughs> but um, this isn't the end of the story. This would be too weird to be the end of the story. Yeah. When we get to the end of Paradise, that's you. It's like there's no better ending. I think imaginable. I really think it's not as weird per se, but it is. This is too weird to be the end of the story. Perhaps that's part of what T.S. Eliot means. It's not really an ending, you know? Yeah. So don't stop reading, is what I'm going to say. For the poem of the day, I wanted to read to you the last section of Seamus Heaney's poetic sequence called Station Island. In this section, he's clearly writing his own version of a Dante-esque tale in which the ghost of a poetic or literary predecessor appears to him instead of Virgil, for Heaney it's James Joyce, and gives him some spiritual and aesthetic guidance. I return to these lines again and again as a kind of 
inspiration and reminder of what one should aspire to when writing poetry. Like a convalescent, I took the hand stretched down from the jetty, sensed again an alien comfort as I stepped on ground, to find the helping hand still gripping mine, fish-cold and bony, but whether to guide or to be guided, I could not be certain, for the tall man in step at my side seemed blind, though he walked straight as a rush upon his ash plant, his eyes fixed straight ahead. Then I knew him in the flesh out there on the tarmac among the cars, wintered hard and sharp as a blackthorn bush. His voice, eddying with the vowels of all rivers, came back to me, though he did not speak yet, a voice like a prosecutor's or a singer's, cunning, narcotic, mimic, definite as a steel nibs downstroke, quick and clean. And suddenly he hit a litter basket with his stick, saying, Your obligation is not discharged by any common right. What you must do must be done on your own, so get back in harness. The main thing is to write for the joy of it. Cultivate a work-lust that imagines its haven like the hands at night dreaming the sun in the sunspot of a breast. You are fasted now, light-headed, dangerous. Take off from here and don't be so earnest. Let others wear the sackcloth and the ashes. Let go. Let fly. Forget. You've listened long enough. Now strike your note. It was as if I had stepped free into space, alone, with nothing that I had not known already. Raindrops blew in my face as I came to. Old father, mother's son, there is a moment in Stephen's diary for April the 13th, a revelation set among my stars. That one entry has been a sort of password in my ears, the collect of a new epiphany, the feast of the holy Tundish. Who cares, he jeered, any more. The English language belongs to us. You are raking at dead fires, a waste of time for somebody your age. That subject people stuff is a cod's game, infantile, like your peasant pilgrimage. You lose more of yourself than you redeem doing the decent thing. Keep at a tangent. When they make the circle wide, it's time to swim out on your own and fill the element with signatures on your own frequency. Echo soundings, searches, probes, allurements, ever-gleams in the dark of the whole sea. The shower broke in a cloudburst, the tarmac fumed and sizzled. As he moved off quickly, the downpour loosed its screens round his straight walk. That's it for now. Claire and I will get to Purgatory and Paradise. I don't know if we'll get there immediately or take a detour or two along the way, but we'll see. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy listening.